Guys, guys, guys. That moment with Rosie O'Donnell was the best. I wish I knew. I wish I could find it, but I can't. Guess what? We did. <laughs> this right? is yeah. We're we're bringing you an episode of like the, our most fun. It's a clip show, baby. It's a clip show. It's a review. It's uh, full of fun. Just our most. We've had so many fun moments and so many big laughs on this show. The best. And we we've never gone back and taken a look at them. And we just figured, you know what? Now's the time to do it. Let's take a look back at now some of the episodes the time. that, you know, you maybe haven't revisited in a while. And so here's, uh, here's a bunch of our, our most fun moments. Enjoy. We sat down with my friend and someone that I've been working with on Girls 5 Eva, the most amazing, Andrew Rannells. My name is Andrew Rannells, and I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> You moved out to New York when you were 18? Or? Uh, 19. I wanted to be on Broadway. I fell in love with, with musical theater. Did you go to Carnegie Mellon or something? I did not. I went to a school called Marymount Manhattan on the Upper East Side. <laughs> I went I, to Loyola Marymount University in LA. Oh, Jesuits. Yeah. Um, uh, yes. And I left um, after about two years. Me too. Because I started working. Me too. Like, Peace out. Oh my God. Are we the same person? We're the same person. <laughs> um, no, but all I wanted to do was musical theater. So like I, um, I came to New York with a very specific goal of like, I wanted to sing and dance on the Broadway. And how was the journey for you? Did you have like any early setbacks where you were like, well, maybe I'll just go do this other thing instead? Yeah, um, I did. I auditioned. I was kind of working and uh, was auditioning a lot and really trying to like make it happen. And then other people around me were making it happen. And I got very discouraged was around it like Matt Morrison. <laughs> it was like Matt Morrison. Yeah, yeah literally like uh-huh. Matt and uh, my friend Gavin Creel. And Ooh, my, hair. Yes. And my friend Jen Gambatese. Like all of those people like got there faster than I did. So around 23, I took a two year break. I took a job. Um, I directed Saturday morning cartoons. What? Yeah. I directed, um, it was a company called Four Kids Entertainment, and I directed Sonic the Hedgehog and oh. Kirby for Nintendo. What? And I, I did that for two years, and I was like, I'm steady never- Steady paycheck. Steady paycheck. And it was like, and in some ways, like it was a, it was very comfortable. And creative Yeah, ish. And I knew what I was doing, but I always, and then I got sucked back in. Um, I got a phone call from a casting director. This was two, like two years into And had you stopped job. auditioning? Yeah, just totally <gasps> stopped. Totally you were like, stopped. this isn't happening. Yeah, it wasn't going to happen for me. And I, and <laughs> at 23 years old, I you decided. And I, 23, I felt very old. Me too, though. Yeah. Me too. I was like, I've been doing this for too long. Yes. And I just hate it. So I stopped. So and then this casting director from Bernie Telsey called me. Bernie Telsey is like the biggest. He's a big, huge he's a casting very, director. He's a very, very big Broadway casting director. Yes. Like all the big musicals. He called me out of the blue and asked me to come in for a musical called Taboo, mm-hmm. which was a uh, Boy George musical that Rosie O'Donnell Rosie was producing. O'Donnell. Oh, wait. I know. Because, you know, Casey was worked for Rosie O'Donnell. Oh, okay. Yes. So so Rosie O'Donnell was big news in New York that she was the sole producer of that musical. It was like a real David Merrick sitch where she was like the only producer on this show. And they were casting this one part. So I went in and I got very close. I was like down to the end, the bitter mm. end. And in fact, Rosie O'Donnell told me to my face in the audition room that I did not get the job. <gasps> 
Did um, you appreciate that? I did. I did too. I, did I do too. Because she let me off the hook. I auditioned and I like tried my damnedest. And then she said, she was like, honey, you're very talented. This is not for you. Well, I love And that was I it. Mean, and I, but I appreciated it yeah. because then I could leave the room and there was not that horrible, like two hours after you auditioned yeah, for something. Yeah, right. you're waiting you're like, for the call, waiting for the call. And so I just, you know, walked away and was sad. But, um, but then that got me hooked back into auditioning. So I quit my job and I started auditioning and then Bernie Telsey cast me in Hairspray. And that wow, sort of wow, restarted wow. my... And so you're, so Hairspray was not, you were a replacement? I was a replacement. Yeah. And you came in and did, did you do, were you corny? I was uh, the pivotal role of Fender in the oh, ensemble. I know John Hill as well. Yes, a- yes, I re- I replaced John Hill. Yes, so yes, so I replaced John Hill, and then I became Link Larkin. Link, right, Link Larkin. I was, I was yes. So I did that for a while, and then you know was fired. And, you were well, you know, contracts run out on Broadway, and they like how to, does that work? They like to bring in new people, so they do you age out a hairspray though too? Oh, like, for sure. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I wasn't too old to do it at the time, but you know, they like to reinvigorate the group, and they just you know they let people go. So I was let go, and oh. that was a real life lesson. And what did what happened when that when you were let go from hairspray? Because you're how how long was your contract? Two years. Uh. I did nine months in the ensemble and nine months as Link Larkin. Ooh, that's nice. And then they said, bye-bye. Were you you surprised when they let you go or? Yeah, I was, I was surprised and devastated. Although this was, so this was almost four years into the, the hairspray run and is Broadway shows often do they start, it becomes the love boat. So they start bringing in like every American idol cast off everyone who was ever on big brother or the real world. Like people start popping up who probably have no business being in a musical. I was luckily replaced with someone who was very talented named Aaron Tveit, um, who is, was doing Moulin Rouge on Broadway right now and has done a lot of things, but um, he, he was the one who came in and replaced me. But it was sad days. And you were bummed. I was bummed, but you know, you just keep going. You, you did. just keep going. You just felt like I'm just gonna keep Yeah. So and on. I like bounced around to some other shows and then landed on in Jersey Boys for a while. And... Okay. So Jersey Boys, you were the understudy. No, 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 I got a I got a I was one of the boys. Wait, that I thought when we were talking last night, I thought you were was that an understudy. No, that was hairspray that I, I understudied, which is a very hard job. That's a really hard job because I covered, I was, I had my own little part in the ensemble and then I covered, <laughs> I covered um, Link Larkin, Corny Collins and a pivotal role called the male authority figure <laughs> who at that time was played by Jim J. Bullock. Oh, oh my so, God. Yes. So here I was at 26 playing the character <laughs> actor and they told me, you'll never go on. You'll never have to do this. And then sure enough, I went on a bunch I had to play like the old man and be like, <laughs> Tracy Turnblatt, you're on the like it was humiliating. That's just like so wigs weird. and glasses and like age makeup. <laughs> it was really Okay, so I wanna know how did Book of Mormon happen? Did you do all of the workshops? So I didn't. I that just came about. It was just, you know, it, it was an audition. I was a part of like that year. I was a part of three different new musicals, like readings and stuff on a Broadway show. You have to try to hustle to get auditions, to get cast in other workshops of shows that might possibly end up on Broadway or might possibly end up at the public or might possibly end up somewhere else or could be whatever. You don't even know. 
because you want to do those so that if those end up getting financed and going, maybe they will bring you in. Yeah, it's all a bit of a of, of a crapshoot, though. It's really tricky to sort of figure out, like, you have to hedge your bets a little bit to be like, well, am I leaving a good job to take a better job? Which is why sometimes, like, you'll go see one of the, like, long-running shows on Broadway, like Lion King or Wicked or something like that. There's, like, there's always, like, people in the cast who are like, this is their 13th year yeah. with Wicked because they're like, <laughs> yeah. I am not, yeah. I am, like... In this part, this is my job. I had a friend who did Chicago for 20 years. Fuck Whoa. off, really? Yeah. Yeah. I was asked at one point to come in to Chicago. Like, Which, I, I, Did you consider it? No, because I was like, it was literally following like somebody from like American Idol. You know, not yeah. American like Idol. Like a that's real housewife? Like, was it like it was like or something? Yeah, it was like, or, yeah, it was like following like, like, like Brandy. Brandy. Glanville. She, well, <laughs> no, like literally she's a Brandy, Brandy Glanville. She was great. I mean, Brandy there is did a Brandy it. Glanville. Did she? I don't know who that is. It? She was the, married to Eddie Cibrian. It maybe it might have been Leanne Rhymes. Oh, did she do Chicago? If Twist. you just she mistook might have. Leanne Rhymes for Brandy Glanville, you just caused a whole other year of drama in that family. Well, Yikes. I don't. Please, let's just cut it. Out. They, I don't want to cause any drama. But are they still together, Eddie and and um? Who cares? Leanne? I think. Are we interested? Is this so? Maybe is this it was the hot gossip. Maybe it was true love. <laughs> Sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. Yeah, you never know. You just don't know. You never know. We don't know what's in people's hearts. <laughs> I. By the way, I'm never judgy. Oh, I am. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, yeah. I didn't know that about you. I'll judge my face off. <laughs> I mean, not- I'll I'll smile to your face. It's called manners, busy. Like. <laughs> I would never say anything mean to your face. <laughs> I'll talk I'm shit not, about you behind your back. I'm not judgy. I'm not judgy about anything. I'm except, from Nebraska. That's except how it works. For, I don't know what else. I don't know. I don't even want to get into it. Um, okay, wait. So you get cast in Book of Mormon. Yes. And from the second you're cast, are you like, holy fuck, this is the best thing ever? Or what do you think? Yeah. Are you nervous? Were you nervous? Terrified. Because they had done, I joined right at the end. So they had done two readings and one workshop. So and they had Josh been working on it for a while. Dad, a part of it from the beginning? So, totally from the beginning, yeah. And who was who was your part? Uh, a few people. Um they kept replacing. Right, cuz they couldn't they didn't get it right till they got you. Well, I guess That's I don't know. The That's truth. what I tell myself. That's, That's what story. I say in the mirror. Um but they yeah, so they kept replacing that role. So I was very nervous and I I came in for the last workshop and they, you know, they didn't offer like Broadway contracts. They were like this is just for the workshop. So I was, you know, really white knuckled that part and I tried to make it as personal as possible and also um, made the singing as high as possible so that they couldn't replace me. <laughs> oh my God. Are you kidding? So I was like, Stephen Arimas, who's a musical director, um, is a good friend of mine. And we would be in rehearsals and I would be like, let's take up the, let's raise the key. And he was like, really? I was like, yep, let's do it. <laughs> so I made it, I made it so high. And so like specific, specific to specific you. to me that like no one else, so they couldn't hear anyone else doing it. Wait, well, first that's of all, called showbiz. That's genius. First of yourself, all, that's genius. Yeah. And I saw you in Book of Mormon. I got to me see too, you. Me too. Me too. And it was, you were impossible to look away from. Yeah. Thank you were you. such a that's fucking star nice. from like the second you walk on stage. I mean, that was the crazy part about doing that show was like all of the people that came to see it. Because that's not uh, usually the case with Broadway shows that like, it's like celebrity after celebrity. And like every night there was some random people that, you know, we Josh and I would like look into the audience and be like, oh my God, Goldie Hawn is here. Um, like <laughs> Oprah were, came. 
Like, yeah. ah! Did you get and to take a picture with Oprah? I sure did. Um, I took a picture with Oprah. Her eyes are closed, <laughs> and Gail and Gail King's blouse had come unbuttoned, so no. her brazier is showing. God giveth um, and God so, taketh away. I know, and I didn't. I didn't oh want to. I didn't want to ask to retake it. <laughs> so I. What? That is the most. <laughs> So I just let oh it go. Oh my God, can we please, can I get somebody that I know that's like really good at Photoshop to just like make that picture open or something. Open her eyes. Op- put, open, do Oprah's an open, eyes. open Oprah's eyes and close Gail's blouse so that we, so that that can be like framed for you. No, it's just not going to happen. But I will say, <laughs> I, I, will, I will say, I do have to see it though. Since that moment, to text it to me. Gail King, Gail King has the, the, uh, this amazing skill that some people have. I do not, where she remembers like faces and names. Like she's like a politician. Like she just, so every time I see her, that was a year, that was almost yeah. 10 years ago. Anytime I see Gail King, she's like Andrew Reynolds. Like she remember, like she's very good You're at also like famous. Well, not, no, not for Gail King, but, but like if anyone, but if, she's so nice. Like she's always so like warm and lovely and like, like, yeah, she remembers things about you from the last time you t- talked. It's really, I ran into her at the opening night of To Kill a Mockingbird on Broadway and she was with Oprah and I, um, I made like a weird, um, decision that I was like, <laughs> I'm going in, I'm, I'm going to go in. That's a wild call. Guys, if you ever see <laughs> Oprah in the wild with Gail King, the decision Don't. to go in is. Don't. Yeah. D- you shouldn't do it. What happened? So I decided, I was like, watch this. I'm going in for Gail. So I went in for Gail and yeah, I was like, Gail. And it was me, Andrew Reynolds. And she was like, hi. And then we were chatting and I did the fakest like, oh, Oprah's here. Like I did like a <laughs> no, real. No, you did not. I did. No, you didn't. Like I didn't see Oprah. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I just went straight. Because like Gail and I had like a rapport. So I was like, well, that seems normal. But then I did like the worst acting job ever. Also that night, if I'm, I'll just, I'll tell you all the stories. Also that night, Hugh Jackman was there, who I'm obsessed with. Obviously. And who's always been very kind to me and like really lovely. So I also, you know, said hello to him. He was sitting behind me and I kept. With Debra. I kept hugging him. Oh no. Oh, wow. (laughs) Until my friend, Sean Dooley, put my, his hand on my back and went, stop it. Because clearly I was making him uncomfortable because I just kept like, I'd be like, oh, it's good to see you. And then he would like ask a question and, and then you would, and I would hug, hug him again. again. What? And then I would say something what? and Were then I would drunk? hug him. No, I was just like wanted to be near him. You just yeah. wanted to hug. You wanted him to hold you I, well, like a baby. Well, when I, so the year of the Book of Mormon and I performed on the Tonys, he performed right before me. So he was uh, backstage getting his microphone on and I was getting my microphone on and he was like, how you feeling? And I was like, I'm very nervous. And he said, he went, come here. And he hugged me and he go. like gave me a hug and he said, he was like, you're going to be fine. And he sort of like rocked me a second. <laughs> and I, and I nuzzled into his neck <laughs> in a really inappropriate way. It sounds like you're almost always inappropriate like, with you. Just res- like restraining order. <laughs> I mean, like he did rock you. He opened he the did, door it, by rocking you. He was doing you. like a, he was like. He was wow. trying to be just like cool, and I took it too far. <laughs> you took it well. I, I mean, by listen, the way, that could be the that could be the alternate title for your book. Yeah, it could have been. I, I, took, I, it took, it I took it too far. I took it too far. Do they have children? Him and Deborah? I don't know. 
I don't know. He's very, and she's also very lovely. Lovely. Yeah, I've, scared, I've scared her a couple times too. Don't. Well, I would imagine, <laughs> I would just think like you just hugging her, her husband. husband and not stopping. I know. I cozied up to her at the Met Ball one year and like, <laughs> I and she finally, like she looked, I saw a look in her face that will, I will have to live with until I die where she was like, basically like, fuck off. Like I just kept, not really, but like, I just kept trying to like, t- like chat with her and I'd be like, so what else? And she was like, please leave. <laughs> We've oh, got, no. we can't do this I any don't longer. Have I have nothing else to do. You know when you, you run out at, the, yes, at those parties yes, and you're like, I, I just Ugh. have to tap out right now. Oh God, I hate it though. I do hate it. Cause you never say goodbye at those things no. you're like it's just like half chats yes yeah and this was early in the night this isn't even when like but all those of things the are actresses so stressful, are drunk. i would imagine the, i don't know I've the met been. ball is super fun because you get to see like every young actress like wasted and crying at the end of the night <laughs> <laughs> i love that just like fighting on their foot like he didn't call me and like everyone's shouting God, and- no matter what it is it's all the same <laughs> it's all the same it's all the fucking same you guys yeah. out there listening you at the at the well, not right now, but yeah, pre and hopefully post coves at the club at the, at the local club on Friday night is no different than Kendall Jenner at the Met Ball. No, you're holding your shoes and you're crying into a cell phone, and you're like, "Should I get a street hot dog?" <laughs> yeah. What about Jen? Oh my God! What a delightful person. I love Andrew so much. Oh, Juneshine. Juneshine. First of all, I loved Juneshine before they made the cans cocktails. Like, I really enjoyed the Juneshine that was like the, like, kind of like the beer one. So refreshing and light and never made me feel like, you know. And now they have these cans cocktails, margaritas, vodka sodas, rum cocktails. Come on made with the premium ingredients that taste amazing and they have no added sugar. No added sugar. It's a lighter, brighter buzz. Just so you know, another kind of canned margarita has 27 grams of sugar and there's no nutritional effects on the packaging. Like, I don't think you really need 27 grams of sugar to make a margarita. I'm serious. Juneshine has one with only six grams of sugar, which is all from the real ingredients that they use, like orange and lime. And Juneshine's margarita tastes so good. The best. Has zero added sugar, flavored only with real orange juice and lime juice, premium tequila, and a hint of sea salt. You guys get into it. Bring it to a BBQ, a cooler at the beach a party, just like at home happy hour. Why not? Just delightful. Juneshine. They have the margarita pack, four different flavors, spicy, mango, tropical, and lime. You know, I'm obviously a fan of that since I've talked about it the most. Um, But also if you like vodka, passion fruit, vodka, soda, and a classic vodka mule, yum. Plus, They have an all-new vodka soda variety pack with four brand new flavors. I haven't tried that yet. I'm going to try it. And they've got Mai Tais, if you like rum, and their new best-selling Surfer on Acid. Whoa. So take on a rum punch. And if you can't choose, get that mixed pack. It has a little bit of everything. Tequila, vodka, rum. 
Juneshine can be found in over 10,000 stores across the country. It's available at all the retailers you're already visiting for groceries and alcohol like Whole Foods Target, Ralph's Vons, Albertsons, Kroger, Wegmans, Total Wine, BevMo, Safeway, and more. But listen, listen, listen to me. We've worked out a special offer for our listeners at any store, at any store. You can buy one Juneshine package and get the second for only a penny, one cent. That's like a 12 to $20 savings. I recommend trying one of their best-selling variety packs. It's a great way to try all of the delicious flavors. Go to juneshine.com slash busy. You text them a photo of your receipt and they will Venmo you immediately. It is that easy. What? That's J-U-N-E-S-H-I-N-E dot com slash busy. Couldn't be easier. We love you, June Shine. Oh, listen, we've talked about this before, but I love my green pan cookware. And if you're a person who's like, hasn't thought enough about what you're cooking with, it's time to start <laughs> thinking about it, especially if you have like nonstick cookware. You've heard us talk about green pan, how green pan makes the best ceramic nonstick cookware money can buy. They are the ones that revolutionized home cooking way back in 2007 when they introduced the world to ceramic nonstick cookware, which is the first and the best toxin-free alternative to cookware with traditional coatings. Their pans are free of PFAS, which you know is P-F-A-S, if you've like, are just used to seeing it in print like me, <laughs> or PFOA, which is the other one, P-F-O-A, lead and cadmium. And listen, if you don't know what that means, all you need to know is that your cookware might be coated with forever chemicals, but green pans are not. A lot of cookware companies say that they are toxin-free, but if they're not PFAS-free, they're not toxin-free. Ugh. I just love, I love green pan because... First of all, it really works. It's nonstick. It's fantastic. But also, they're, it's cute. I went with the blue because we have the yellow tile in the kitchen and it looks so great. And if you're not sure what kind of cookware you need, Green Pan has a quiz. You know I love a quiz. And it, it will guide you to the right choice based on your experience level and how often you cook and what kind of stovetop you have. Green Pan also, guess what? Owns their factory. So, Sometimes other companies create cheap products with cheap materials because, you guessed it, it's cheaper. Green Pan makes sure its products live up to their standards. Plus, they have a 60-day return policy. So you have plenty of time to make sure Green Pan is right for you. So guys, toss those plastic pans and upgrade your cookware with Green Pan. Head to greenpan.us and use promo code BEST. And you'll receive 30% off your entire order plus free shipping on orders over $99. That's right, 30% off. So head to greenpan.us and make sure you use our promo code BEST or they will not know that we sent you. And it is important that they know. We love you, Green Pan. Uh, I really had a lovely time talking with Rosie O'Donnell. Yeah. She was incredible. And for those of you that don't know, 
our dear Casey St. Ange, after she was David Letterman's assistant, guys, she could write a fucking book. <laughs> but she won't because she's not that kind of person. I, I have am. manners. <laughs> not me. I would, the book would have already been out. Um, she went to work on the Rosie O'Donnell show. And so much of the stuff that we talked about earlier today, I really think Rosie is responsible for creating an environment in that show that was unlike anything Casey had ever experienced before and kind of showed you the possibility of the way that things could be. And yes. by all accounts, it was a pretty magical six years on that show, including... Including the fact that, well, I'm going to let you guys listen to it because Casey has a really sweet, she says a really amazing thing to Rosie that I'm just going to, I'm just going to dare you to not cry when it happens. <laughs> I'm so happy to know that this is not going out. I took a bath. I tried to <laughs> fix my hair and I'm like, now it's not going out. I'm so happy. Hi, Rosie. Hi. Hi. How are you? Nice I'm to good. meet you. It's so nice to meet you. I've been such a huge fan for so long. I would dream, dream. I would do... When I was in college at Loyola Marymount University, oh no, am I going to cry already? Uh, I would drive back to Arizona and I would practice my interview with you in the car. Oh, that is so cute. Yeah. You know, I used to do that with Johnny Carson when I was like 16. I had pimples and I would sit on my bathroom and I'd go like, so Johnny Carson, when I was 16, I used to sit on my bathroom and talk to you. Like I was doing like Jerry Seinfeld's effect. Yeah. And yeah. yeah the it, that was... Thing. It was like my dream. And I really wanted one of those Koosh toys. Yeah, those toys. You made a lot of money for that guy. I know. Yes. But like, I feel like you made a lot of money for a lot of other people. Yes, <laughs> we did. We made a lot of money. We were able, you know, I felt like it was a good use of my power to try to be like the mafia for existing nonprofits that were credited. Right. So like if somebody said after I did tickle me elmo which was a real thing my son yeah. actually really liked it so that's why i brought it on tv then they would come in the week after and go well by the way this is the new dolly lolly doll the lolly <laughs> could you say you love it i'm like if i'm gonna do things i'm gonna rip you off and i'm gonna make you pay a lot to charity in order to get me to do something and that's what we did. We raised millions of dollars. It's genius. You were an influencer. Yeah. You were the first influencer, essentially. And, it, and I really did feel like Robin Hood, I have to tell you. I felt like, you know, when when they would say, give away this toy, and I'd say, can you send 2,000 toys to this hospital? And they would. I know. Oh my God, that's amazing. You sent kids you send kids to college. You kept families in their homes. And everything that everybody saw on the show was only like, a hundredth of it. Right, exactly. It is innately my nature to be that way. Like it has been since I was a little kid. Like we won a bread album on a radio channel, WBLI, <laughs> right after my mother died. So like 1973. And my brother, Danny, who was a year older than me, he's the one who won it. And the whole family, like it was the first thing we did after my mother died. We all got in the car together and we went to WBLI and we got a brand new record. And it felt unbelievable to me. Like everything bad that had happened was like, look at this moment of grace that we're getting. And so to give someone a moment of grace, to facilitate that in an actual real way, not like, can you hold up the lolly dolly doll now, mm -hmm. right? In a real yeah. way. 
then that's what what was real about the show was that everything was true, except oh. for I did know the mystery guests. <laughs> is that true? Oh, you did. It is true. I did. Well, you got to be prepared. You know what I mean? Because you don't, yeah. you don't love a surprise, right? I don't love a surprise. Me neither. No, no. I said, listen, I will fake anything you tell me to do, but I will not have you like come on. Like I, you know how Ellen surprises everyone? I hate it. I've never done that show because I'm terrified she's going to scream, scare me, have give me a heart attack. Yeah, no. I, I mean, I don't know if you saw it, but a couple of years ago, there was she scared Kris Jenner and that woman almost broke her leg. I'm telling you. It was like terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Chantira, you've seen it. We, oh, we yeah. watched it I together. I'll be scared. I'll cry. Um, I was curious. I thought of you first as an, I mean, I knew of you first as an actor um, and like a, you are really talented and super like every time you're in something it's critically acclaimed and I know this much is true you're getting of course like obviously people love you on that you're getting rave reviews for that but Smilf like you were like amazing but when you decided to do the talk show I was curious if you had like how that came to you. Had you guest hosted with Regis in my head? Yeah. That's how ha- it happened. That's exactly how it happened. I guest hosted <laughs> with him. I had a new baby, my first baby, Parker and Parker. And I, I remember to, I went to do <laughs> a movie, Harriet the spy. And I had to get a nanny because I hadn't had a nanny till then. And he was like, you know, eight, nine months old. So I got this, my house cleaner, Maria, I asked her to come with me to the movie set to help take care of him. And when I came home after like the second day of 12 hours, he wouldn't come to me. He would, he was staying with Maria and I'm like, come here, boo boo. Come here. He would not come. And I thought I need a job where he can grow up with his cousins Mm. and his family around him, where I'm going to be there every day to take him to school, to do, you know, and then Kathy Lee said she was leaving Regis she did it a lot. Remember, she would yeah. say that she, she was leaving. One of these times happened to coincide with right after I filmed that movie, Harriet the Spy. So I called my agent and said, tell them I want Kathy Lee's job. So they called. And um, at the time, I had done it a lot. And I loved Regis. I mean, I just loved him. But um I said to my, my agent said, well, listen, Kathy Lee's not leaving, but they actually want to talk to you about doing your own talk show. And I was like, really? They were like, yeah. I was like, well, if I did it, I would have to do it like Mike Douglas and Merv Griffin, (laughs) where nobody gets hurt. You know, I used to watch those shows and think, oh, my God, Tony Fields is going out to dinner right now with Mm -hmm. Sammy Davis and Merv Mm -hmm. and the comedian who was on. Like, I had this whole fantasy, right? And I thought that's where Hollywood was and where Hollywood lived. And it was not, you know, what it is now. It's not like the internet. It's not everybody. Clickbait and trying to get someone to say the wrong thing so that you can, like, get a bunch of people to click on the article. Exactly. And it's, it's a whole different world. Like, I don't know what, I don't know how people stand it. You know, there are people who, um, you know, are, they just, they live in that zone. And yeah. I guess, you know, what, what the big pivot for me, cause I know that's like a big theme it is, yeah. is when I left that show because right. I, I started that show because I had a son and I left that show because I had four children under the age of six. It's crazy. 
It's crazy. I did what my mother did every two years. Give me another one. And if my ex Kelly hadn't said, I'm not doing another one, there would be a lot more. Oh my God. <laughs> like eight. Yeah. I, can't, I, I get it. I have two, but I have my, my thing is like when they're further apart and I miss the baby. I love a baby. Yes, I love a baby too. It's incredible. So the pivot when you, after your fourth kid to end the talk show, really kind of like it was still, I feel like it was a huge show still. Yeah, was it was. It? You, you went out on top. <laughs> right. Rosie, I have this memory of like when they, you know, when you announced that you were gonna sort of go off the air and, um, you know, and we all knew that it was, it wasn't a surprise. We all knew that it was coming, but I remember that we had, um, like a rap meeting, like a staff rap meeting. And I feel like I used to always, or for whatever reason, we used to always end up sitting next to each other in big meetings. Right. And I remember our executive producer, Bernie Young, was talking to us about, oh, the, you know, the show's ending. Here's how this is going to go. And I remember you kept whispering to me, can you believe it's going to be over? What are we going to do? <laughs> Exactly. (laughs) You know, and people were telling me, Jim Paratori told me, you will never have this much power. You will never have this much money. This is stupid for you to walk away. You could, you know, have generational wealth. I said, my brother just told me that I have a hundred million dollars. Jesus. You know what that means? That means it's time for me to stop. I have enough money. I can't use money as the reason. But I had these four little children that my mother died at 39. Right. She never got to parent her children, you know. So I left right at around the age that, you know, uh, like my my oldest boy was about to turn seven. Parker was about to turn seven. And I jumped and it took a while to get back to earth. And, you know, when you jump, it makes everyone else in the plane question, why didn't they jump? Right. 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 And so you get a lot of slings and arrows coming at you. People, you know, like people saying things that aren't true that get, you know, and, and listen, Donald Trump didn't help with that, you know, for me and the, the all of the papers that he was coordinating with and, Ugh. you know, that whole uh, yeah. insanity. But all that came after the show, because when you're on a show daily and people get to see you live, mm-hmm. you're going to know that person. Right. By the way, Casey told me you don't love that view book, but I read it. The yeah. ladies who lunch you thing. Right. But I thought you came off really amazing on the book in the book and and also and like very truthful and honest and like owning your own shit. But also just being like, yeah, it was weird. They they built like your personalities up on the show, almost like in a narrative like way to pit you guys against each other to create yes. this whole thing that yeah. must have been like i don't know i that must have just been wild after it was totally wild to do it the first time and then have the ratings go so high and have the you know them asking am i going to stay am i going to not and so my agent and my based on what i used to make on on my own show and you know, they asked for $5 million a year, which is not that much, really, if you're right. going to, for them, for ABC. Mm-hmm. And they, got they didn't want to pay that. And I said, okay, then I'm going to go. Thank you anyway. You know, I couldn't do more fighting with people for a living. And then after I had announced that I was going to go, that's when it got really bad. Oh, man. Because again, I was leaving. 
Like I was, you know, leaving, but I couldn't do inauthenticity. Right. But it also feels like you're somebody who is willing to stand up for what you believe in, like speak up for those who aren't able to speak up for themselves or help people out in that way. And that you feel injustice deeply and you want and you won't stand for it. And that to me, that which is a really incredible characteristic feels like it was just totally exploited. It's hard to take, it's hard when you're sensitive to Mm -hmm. take all the negativity that comes, you know, um, I left right before we got into the war and thank God that I, that was God protecting my psyche and myself because that was not a good time for me, you know? So I feel like when I said I was going to pivot out of my show, that was from the beginning. I told Casey at the beginning, I'm doing five years and I ended up doing six. But I said, I'm telling you right now, I'm not doing more than five years because he'll be six years old and he has to go to school. You know, and so I-, I always knew that was the truth. Other people on the staff didn't seem to believe it. <laughs> and and I really... I really remember we would um, line up at your office to do a writer's meeting first thing in the morning, every morning, like seven o'clock. We had already been there for an hour coming up with pitches. And I remember executives cutting the line every morning when the when your end date was coming close, being like, we just have to get we just have to get in there and talk to her for a second. And they were coming in there with checks. More and more money trying to convince you to stay. And every time we'd go in and and we'd be like, what'd you tell him? And you were like, no, I said no. I'm telling you, it was hard to do because there is something that it fills. There is some space in your life that Mm -hmm. it fills. But your perspective is so skewed as to what's important and what's valuable about you as a human being and just about being in the world as a participant. Right. It was it was too much focus um, for not having a daily show, because if you have a daily show, you can't fake your essence, mm-hmm. you know, right. you can't. And I, I think you, you can't, can well, <laughs> you can't, Rosie. I can't do that. Right. Right. And there's no amount of, of money or anything that could make me do that. That's why I have compassion for Ellen. Right. I have compassion, even though, you know, I hear the stories and I understand I have my own uh, kind of history with her. and Right. Well, they just ripped your show off. <laughs> well, well, it wasn't my format. I didn't create it. They ripped off the Merv Griffin ripoff. But yes. <laughs> so you're very humble. I can't own the format. But was it weird that like my producers went over to her show and and that then a lot of, you know, it, it was it's odd. It's awkward. And then. You know, it ended up I never did the show. And then people are like, why haven't you done the show? I want to say a couple things um, that I hope aren't digressions. First of all, the original intent of the Rosie O'Donnell show, which I was there for from day one, might have been to emulate Merv Griffin. But Rosie, you innovated daytime television, television, period. You brought music back to television. Oh, no, I'm going to (laughs) cry. To bring musical theater into the homes of people across the country who could only dream of going to New York City and seeing a Broadway show is so monumentally huge. I mean, do you know how many kids in, like, Ohio, like, got to see these casts? And no one's doing it still. Every young waiter in New York says to me, <laughs> oh, my God, you don't understand. I'm from Utah. Yes. And I saw your show and Ragtime was singing 
and I'm I'm just going. I, I'm now I'm here. I'm trying to be an actor. Like they <laughs> all the time. And and I did think when we were doing that somewhere we're sparking the new Sondheim. That's yes. right. New Lin Manuel. Yeah. We're sparking and, some kid somewhere. That and beyond that, be in this, you yeah. know? beyond that, all, the comedy, the games, the song parodies. Without you, I firmly believe there is no Jimmy Fallon. Without you, I believe there is no James Corden on Late Night. A hundred percent. And also just human interest. You made human interest a thing and you made women's health a thing and everything that was happening on camera that was inclusive and informative and was really, really funny, but had a lot of heart. The same thing was happening behind the scenes. Our executive producer was a black man. Was he the first ever black executive producer of a talk show? I don't know, but we had... We had a fully inclusive staff and, you know, when I got surprise pregnant when I was 26, I knew that there was a place uh, I could keep my job and come to work every day and bring my baby there. You know, so you were just, you were doing a lot of things that it not just influenced, but like made my whole, I don't know what my whole mission in life has been to continue to do things as well as you did them back then. Oh, Casey, that's so nice to hear. But here you were this really intelligent woman who had been at David Letterman for all these years. And then you're like my assistant. And I think you're still a little shell shocked. And I said, like, what's going on? And you're like, well, I'd really like to be a writer. I'm like, okay, let's do it. You know? And you've succeeded and beyond. Look what you're creating now. This is a great, I I love the show that you guys did. I watched it with my teenager. Thank you. Thank you. uh, My my 17-year-old daughter, who is um, very into it. And Uh. it was great. I think, you know, it's hard for women, period. It's hard now for the, you know, but this is the greatest format, don't you find? Yeah, Yeah. because we're all like, I don't even have pants on right now. Right, exactly. <laughs> but imagine if imagine if they would let you pick who you wanted to have that show. Imagine right. if they would let you make a new view, a really right. politically relevant view, a view that's not what it is on TV now, right? What it could be. Yeah. What it was at one point, I think. Wait, Rosie, are we doing this? Is that what we're doing, Casey? <laughs> I'm not kidding. Are we, are, are we selling surprise. this? <laughs> oh, my God. It's the next pivot. Um, could be. You guys, are. this is what I love to do. If I could do this every day for a living, I would do it. You know, early on, Rosie was a series regular on Give Me a Break, which was also like a little bit of a pivot, because I remember you used to tell this story about how you were doing stand up and you knew some executives from NBC were coming to watch you. Well, it's even better than that. It was Brandon Tarnikoff with Lorne Michaels and Cher. Oh, oh my god. Wow. Now mind you, right I'm a stand-up comic working at the Improv in New- in LA. So I knew they came to see Dana and I was friends with the waitresses at this tiny club called Igby's that's not open anymore. And I used to hang out there it was sort of my home club. I loved it. It was small. I was friends with all the waitresses so they held their checks because I was next. So they didn't drop the checks for, and so that they had to see me. So <laughs> I went on and so did awesome. my act. That and that's from, genius. From that, they called me in and they, the Brandon Tarnikoff walked over with Lauren Michaels and said, you're a very special talent. We're going to do something with you. Call my office in the morning. <gasps> so I called my sister and said, I'm going to be on SNL. They were here for SNL. I'm going to be on SNL. I was convinced 
I was going to get to be on Saturday Night Live. But they said, no, you're going to be on the Nell Carter show. I was still thrilled <laughs> because she had been in Ain't Misbehaving, which I saw on Broadway. So oh, yeah. I was, you know, very excited to meet her. But she was in a very bad place when we were doing that. Mm. You know, she was really sick. She was really sick and she had gone through some addiction issues and yeah. some custody issues. And she was unhappy and it was very, very hard to be around. That's something that sometimes like is trippy to me. You know, I like sitting in my home with my kids at the pool, you know, trying to get Dakota to not be afraid of the cave. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's that's what my day entails. But then I think or I look on, you know, TV or I see a brilliant performance and I go, I know them. I think one of the things I really love, too, about the stories you're telling and the experiences that you've had is that I, in this industry, people will have like a good experience or a bad experience. And you took the situations and the experiences that you had and you said this earlier and you came at everybody who worked for you with grace being kind you being the type of person to go into a comedy club and knowing that those people deserve grace they drop the check for you and guess what everybody wins so i think right. that you have such longevity because you were a kind person yeah charles groden wrote a great book about this uh, you know it would be so nice if you weren't here is the name of it <laughs> it was just so spectacular about treating the janitor the same way as he mm -hmm. treats the CEO, which worked really well with janitors, but not so much with CEOs. Right. Yeah. Right. And so he talked about his career and show business and, and how we, we forget, you know, I mean, when I was on the height of my show, like it was a very trippy experience. It wasn't like uh, anything close to real life. You know, you, get mass adulation from the multitudes every day, like a shot mm -hmm. of heroin in your arm. You get people clapping for your very existence and then telling you how you changed and altered their life. And it's a lot to take in. Mm -hmm. And when I stepped away, I knew that this was all I could take. Right. How did you, but how, how did you deal with it? What was your coping mechanism? When I stopped, yeah. You quit the yeah. heroin. You quit yeah. the heroin. So what's I your methadone? Did. Well, I started painting. Mm -hmm. You know, I do very large paintings. And um, my brother said we have them all in storage and nobody really wants them. And what do you <laughs> want to do with them? Painting was the secret to detoxing. Sure, from I think that from fame, from that high level of, you know, anything. Are you hungry? And you get 17 options, you know? Right. Or, yeah. They, you know, you want to taste this new ice cream? They just flew it in from uh, Hawaii for you, you know. <laughs> uh, it was like a never-ending smorgasbord in Vegas, you know. Yeah. Guys, at the Rosie O'Donnell show, one day Rosie said on the show that she liked Krispy Kreme donuts. And we didn't just get Krispy Kreme donuts. We got the whole fucking machine that made the Krispy <laughs> Kreme donuts. Yeah. Hot, like the hot donut conveyor oh, belt. Oh, that's so delicious. That's insane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it just was, from her mentioning. Yeah. So, you know, that was a lot of uh, and that that drains on your soul, you know, mm -hmm. it pull, I mean, it pulls you away from your true path and essence. And, you know, you can start to overlook things. I mean, well, my husband was saying this interesting thing. He's like, you know, they always expect women in power to not just be the boss, but to also be the mom. But I think I think you suffered from that a little bit too, Rosie. One of the things I always 
was surprised about is people would be like, Rosie's tough, you know, like she's a tough boss. And I was like, no, actually, like I've worked in a nursing home. I've worked in (laughs) retail. I've had tough bosses. She's direct and she's has a vision and she wants us to carry out this vision and she's right about the vision. So, you know, so it's really weird that you're painting that as tough because I always, I love instructions, you know, that I think you maybe, I don't know if you remember this about me. I love instructions. I love to be told this is how I want it. And then I'll bust my ass to make it how you want it. And so I always loved that you would be like directly, this is what I want, X, Y, Z. Can you do it? Great, go do it. You know, so I never saw that as tough, but I think because you were a woman and I think whenever you, you know, you were, you were crowned the queen of nice. So whenever, (laughs) whenever the show was over and you took off the crown and had your sweatpants on and we were getting to work, people would, people who worked with us would be like, you know, oh, she's, she's not like smiling and laughing. And I'd be like, no, she's fucking doing business. She's working. (laughs) She's doing business. Like we're all doing business. Like we're all trying. We're trying. We're trying. trying. (laughs) Rosie, I know that you said that it was a weird experience to have people come to you in adulation and tell you that how you changed their lives. But um, you allow me to be one more person to say that I just want to tell a quick story and maybe we'll cut it out, but maybe we'll tell it. When I was first made a writer on your show... And I had come to your show as your assistant and I annoyed Rosie as an assistant and she like fired slash promoted me to a better job because (laughs) you said you were like, you're irritating to me. Your style of being an assistant is irritating to me, but I like you and I want you to stay here. So I got another job. And then when a writing position opened... I was made a writer and I was, it was my dream come true. My dream come true came true when I was 23 years old. Like I didn't have any ambition beyond that to be a writer. And so I would go into pitch every morning and my hands would shake and my voice would shake and you knew me a little bit already. And um, you asked our head writer, like, what, what's the deal with Casey? Like we know each other why is she like shaking? Like she can barely speak. And so our head writer, Jeanette Barber was like, well, you know how like writers are on 13 week contracts. And you were like, no, I actually don't know. I don't explain to me what that is. And so she said, you know, everybody is only hired for 13 weeks at a time. And she's already a couple weeks in. And I'm sure like everyone, she's very nervous that in 11 weeks, this could all be over. And, you know, she's starting from square one. And you said to Jeanette, oh, okay, then do me a favor, go to the show's lawyers, pick up her contract for two years, then go to her and tell her to relax and learn how to do this job. And that changed my life. You used your power to change my life. And I know that you did it for so many other people. Well, I love you, Casey. That's very, very sweet and touching of you to say. And, you know, we had a good thing there. I got to say, we had a really good thing. And I loved all the staff and I I was happy for the six years. The years that came after it were tough. You know? <laughs> they were tough to, to get my descent back to Earth. But that's where I want to be is, in you know, on Earth. And I still have a very privileged life and a very... Um, you know, I'm still reaping the benefits of that show financially. I will for the rest of my life. My children will. I, you know, I was very, very lucky. Everything came together perfectly, you know. We were lucky too. Uh-huh. 
we were lucky to get to watch it. (laughs) I was. (laughs) Rosie, thank you so much. Well, it's very fun to do anytime you want me. Ah, oh, I mean, we're sell- I'm like, we're selling the real view, man. That's, like- <laughs> That's it. Go sell it. I tell them I'm on board. Okay. Yeah. Euphoria. Guys, I mean, listen, we are forever Foria ambassadors. <laughs> we love Foria so much. We love them because we love... That even if you're like, I'm having good sex, Foria's like, guess what? What if I told you it could be better? Listen, they have products like the Awaken Arousal Oil and the Sex Oil. And people who may not think they need extra help in the bedroom are going to be very pleasantly surprised by just how much better, more pleasurable your experience can be. Like imagine the best orgasm or sex you've ever had. Now imagine it could be even better (laughs) with products that were designed to naturally enhance sexual pleasure and give you access to bigger and better orgasms solo or with a partner. Foria is using all natural and plant-based ingredients to intensify sexual pleasure and relieve discomfort. They have a serious cult following with tens of thousands of people who have had their sex lives literally transformed through their products. We read it before. I'm going to read it again just because I enjoy it. A real testimonial on their website is, and I quote, my wife and I use the sex oil and awaken. And when she gets on top, we both come so hard. We see sounds and hear colors. Sir, tip of the hat to you. Foria makes products that'll transform your sexual pleasure, especially if you have a vagina. Or if you're loving someone that has a vagina, the Awaken Arousal Oil uses CBD and warming sensation-inducing organic botanicals that enhance arousal, sensitivity, pleasure, access to orgasm, and help with any discomfort. And best of all, it just turns you on. Used together, Awaken's Arousal Oil and the Sex Oil are the perfect combo for peak pleasure. So yes, you have our permission to try this. Please try it. We fully endorse you to go ahead, treat yourself to more deeper, fuller pleasure wherever you can find it and as often as possible. And you can start with a bottle of Foria. Foria is offering a special deal just for our listeners. Get 20% off your first order by visiting foriawellness.com slash best or use code best at checkout. That's F-O-R-I-A wellness.com forward slash best for 20% off your first order. I very much recommend trying their Awaken Arousal Oil and the Sex Oil. You're going to thank us. Oh, Sundays. I just actually fed Gina Linetti Sundays. She loves it. It's healthy dog food, but it's actually easy to store and serve. You don't have to worry about remembering to defrost something or where something is or how you, did you touch it? And then now you got, I mean, like, There's all kinds of things with the dog food these days, but not with Sundays. Sundays is air-dried dog food made from a very short list of human-grade ingredients. Co-founded by Dr. Tori, a practicing veterinarian, Sundays contains 90% meat, 10% vegetables, 0% synthetic nutrients. And other than USDA beef and all-natural chicken, there's digestive aids like pumpkin and ginger, plus disease-fighting antioxidants. Listen, 
Gina loves Sundays. And I love it because I know it's good quality, the best quality, and it's zero stress for me, zero mess. It's shelf-stable. So I don't have to worry. And every order ships right to my door, which is, you know, the best part for me. I never worry about running out of food. Sundays also, let me tell you, cost 40% less than other healthy dog food brands because they don't waste money on shipping frozen packages. And instead, they spend on what matters, sourcing the best all-natural ingredients for your beloved puppy. We worked out a special deal for you, our dog-loving listeners. Try it out. See if you like, see if your dog likes it as much as Gina Lanetti. Get 35% off your first order of Sundays. Go to sundaysfordogs.com slash busy or use code busy at the checkout. That's S-U-N-D-A-Y-S-F-O-R-D-O-G-S dot com forward slash busy and upgrade your pup to Sundays. Feel good about the food you feed your dog. We love you, Sundays. Casey only knows legends. <laughs> All of the guests that Casey's booking are like the like people like people are like, how the fuck did you get Rosie O'Donnell on your <laughs> podcast? And I'm like, uh, Casey's in on. And people are going to be I'm telling you right now, people are going to be like, how the fuck did Busy Phillips get David Letterman on her <laughs> podcast? And guys, look no further than his one time assistant. <laughs> Many, 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 many moons ago when many. she was just a wee tyke, she called herself feral, I believe, <laughs> <laughs> was plucked from obscurity into more obscurity <laughs> David Letterman's assistant. So guys, we talked to David Letterman. It was a real trip. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Dave. Hi. Your name's right there. <laughs> Is my name up there? It yes. is. It says Dave. That's me. That's you. We know who you are. And I'm busy, Phillips. You're in uh, New York, Manhattan? I'm in New York. Yeah, I'm in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. I live in, have lived in LA for over 20 years. I moved out there for college and then started working as an actor and have a house and all that. And then um, I kind of just, I had to get out. And so now I'm in New York. When you said you had to get out of LA, what does that mean? It's a long story, Dave. But a change of scenery is always good for, for okay. a person. Okay, I'm sorry. You you brought it up. I'm sorry. <laughs> I did. I did. But wait, when did you live in North Hollywood? Uh, I moved in 1975. Uh, I was, was my first residence in L.A. It was 1975 at uh, um, uh, right off Lancashire and Miranda. Lancashire and Miranda. I lived near the, uh, the Nudies, the, the uh, country western store. Legendary country western. Oh, sort yes. I've taken my girls there when they were horseback riding for a minute and a half to yeah, get all yeah. outfitted. And then, of course, they gave that up and we had all the gear. So that was fun. <laughs> how, how many girls do you have? I have two. I have a 12-year-old and a 7-year-old. Casey, what about your kids? Oh, they're great. Eli is 21 and he's... Oh, Jesus I, Christ! I know. He's living in Connecticut. Uh, what does he do? He is a college student, also distance learning. And where, do, uh, where does he go? 
He goes to Southern Connecticut State University, but he'll just say New Haven if you ask him and let you make your own conclusion. So we're supposed to think it's Yale? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then my younger son, Lincoln, is 18, and he's here with us in Los Angeles, and he just Mm -hmm. graduated from Eagle Rock High School, and he's going to Cal State LA this semester, but also from his bedroom. And Shintara, do you have kids? Oh, no. I absolutely 100% want zero children. <laughs> I, want to, I want to be a fun black aunt. I want to, like, come around for Christmas and Thanksgiving, give the kids, like, $100, and then leave. <laughs> Drink a cocktail, give mm-hmm. you $20, tell them that they're my favorite, and leave. <laughs> what, what is your favorite cocktail? Uh, I'm actually I'm very into bourbon. I like a, a bourbon neat. Yeah, there you go. I, you know what I dislike, and I don't drink, but I dislike uh, somebody who says bourbon and, and then like butterscotch syrup or something. And like, what? I'm no. sorry, what? And I'm like, what? <laughs> My parents are like your biggest fans. We only watched you growing up. I would pretend that I was Terry Garr. Ah. Um, it was my dream was to be Terry Garr uh, in all the ways, but um, but especially when she was on your show. And Terry Garr uh, was was tremendous, just tr- a tremendous actress and a lovely person. And uh, uh, she she really uh, helped us become established because she she was well regarded, and just by virtue of her being on our show, that that helped us greatly. Well, and you guys had such an amazing chemistry together. You were always, you played off of each other so incredibly well. Well, she she was the kind of person that made everybody look better. Oh, that's the nicest thing that anyone could say about a person, I think. <laughs> um, in those early days, like when, when, you, when you say like she really helped us out, like w- when you started with the late show, was it like touch and go? Did you think like this isn't going to last or? Yes. Yes, I did because uh, I had done one other show uh, for NBC and it didn't last. And uh, I think everybody understands the trauma of losing one's uh, livelihood, especially if that's all one ever wanted to do. And then starting up again, you, you it takes a while to lose that trepidation. Yeah. And for you're, sure. you're, you're talking about the morning show. Yes. It was on for uh, a week. No way. Really? <laughs> they gave you one week? About a week. Yeah. <laughs> and what was the, what was the reason they're like, you'll work better late night. People don't understand what you're talking about. What did no, they say? Uh, it just sucked. <laughs> That's not true. Why? It was, it was a very good I, show. It's I don't not, believe he's that. He's lying. He's lying. No, it, it, you t- <laughs> yeah, sadly, you can't see any evidence of it. And uh, that was true when it was on. <laughs> <laughs> and then you get the show. But they gave you so you had a lot of time. Do you, did, was it always pressure? I don't remember. I watched that HBO movie in like the 90s, but I don't remember it. The Late Night Wars. Sorry. <laughs> I, I don't that movie it. is is uh, there's two reasons uh, I I uh, I don't like HBO. Uh, you want to hear them both? <laughs> yes. Of course, yes, please. Okay. Uh, well, one time I was in New York City and uh, I had no money on me. Uh, just had no money. I'd, I'd spent it getting drunk, and <laughs> I, I needed money to get a cab to get to the airport. And all I had was a checkbook. 
Now, Shintira, uh, you're probably not old enough to remember checkbooks. <laughs> I, I, I do, I do. I was one of those guys, if you, ha- if you still had checks in the checkbook, you assumed you ha- still had money. Well, that's oh. not the way they work. <laughs> Uh, so anyway, I go I go to the improv, and the guy who was the bartender, and I won't mention his name here, but later went on to become the head of uh, HBO. And so it's 11 o'clock at night at the improv. I have no money. Uh, I had been on The Tonight Show. I thought, well, the improv might know that I'm good for a $10 check because, you know, I'd, I'd been on Major League TV, so I walked in there, oh, hi, you're so-and-so, I'm so-and-so. Yeah, nice to see you. Listen, uh, I have no money. i got to get to the airport. Can I write a $10 check? And he said, no. Okay. R- reason number one that I hate HBO. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. No, wouldn't, wouldn't take a $10 check. The second one was one of you invoked that miserable movie. Uh, who was it? Yeah, that was thanks. me. Thanks, Busy. Uh, <laughs> So they had me at my home on the weekend, and they had set up a like an archery target, uh, and me standing like 50 feet from the archery target, throwing softballs at it. <laughs> this is something you'd only see in a very, very inexpensive carnival. <laughs> a, a very, like a church-sponsored carnival might have this event. In my lifetime, I've never thrown softballs at an archery target. That's reason number two. And I think you'll all back me up. Dave, I worked for you when that movie came out. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I remember you being like, coming in and being like, did you watch that? And I was like, I might have watched like a couple minutes of it. And then later in the day, you called me into your office and you were like, hey, come in here. I got to ask you something. I don't walk like that, do I? (laughs) (laughs) I hate it, though. I've had several comedian up-and-coming improv women who have done me, and they always fucking get it wrong, and it drives me insane because they just go straight valley girl and make me sound like a fucking idiot. And the truth is my voice is actually very deep and my parents are from Chicago and I have like a hard A. I guess it's not always the most flattering portrayal that people go for. <laughs> you know what? I, uh, uh, I don't know you well. Uh, just let this go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, got it. Got it. Just let this go. You know, let it go. Short. <sighs> Well, thank you for joining us. Yeah, I was going to say thank you for... It's been a lot of fun. I got to mow the yard. Goodbye. (laughs) Dave, it was so nice when you made that video for me when my show was canceled. Um, Oh, no, I'm going to cry. It made me... um, It was really... It really meant a lot to me. And and it also, I think, clearly, because you didn't know who the fuck I was before... Casey or somebody told you it really speaks so much to how wonderful our friend Casey St. Ange is and um, how much you must have enjoyed uh, her working for you. I can say many things about this. Um, one of the best things that happened to me is uh, the show ended because uh, I, 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 it transformed me back to an actual human being because when I was in the, in the eye of the storm, and, and by the way, it was not calm the way the eye of a storm is, but when I was in the storm of doing a nightly show, 
for how many years we did 30, it. 33? Yeah. It changes, it change. It warps one's view uh, physically, emotionally, and in every way humanly possible, it changes a person. When I, when I stopped doing the show, uh, I began reflecting on the humanity of what that experience must have been for others. And it, it filled me with uh, a lot of fun memories. And then also uh, a lot, of, I began to realize that I, I didn't get to know some of the people the way I would like to have known them and probably would have in another walk of life. And uh, Casey, I believe, uh, falls into that latter category. And, and through kind of reflecting on the show, I began to know more about Casey's role at, at uh, the show. And it, it was because of that connection, uh, that and, and your hard A's, that I was happy <laughs> to help out. <laughs> I, I would like to say something because you and I have actually talked, um, you know, since since the show ended and you're a busy guy. You know, everyone in the world, the the amount of people that I know and who have influenced my life is certainly smaller. And I appreciate you saying like it wasn't perfect because it certainly wasn't. It was a wild time, but I was also basically feral when I came <laughs> To work for you, <laughs> I was. Uh, that was on the application. Check here if you're feral. <laughs> it, it kind of was, you know. I again, I don't know how much you remember, but I basically had been rejected for an internship, and then I suddenly got a call saying, like, "Oh no, it turns out that." somebody does want you to come to this show and work for them. And it was you and your office. And so I just came from this farm with shit on my shoes to New York City uh, to work for you. I remember interviewing with you and you said, the only thing I really care about is can you drive a stick shift? And I was like, no, no, sir, I cannot drive a stick shift. (laughs) And uh, so I was like, well, that's it. My ship is sailing by. But so then you, you picked me and I came and when I got up the courage to say like, hey, by the way, why did you pick me when I couldn't do the one thing that you wanted your intern to do? You were like, oh, this girl has a weird name. She went to a terrible school. (laughs) (laughs) I had met you and I thought like, okay, so she can't drive my car to put gas in my car, but she seems smart and she'll figure it out. And so like you having that faith in me that I would figure it out was a really big deal. And so, yes, it was a storm. It was a crazy time. And there's a lot of things that I would change about the way things were done in that time, not just with our show, but every show. But also you did give me a shot. Well, you're being very generous. Uh, And what I would like to re-underline is uh, I, I wish I had uh, stronger, better, and different relationships with the people uh, who were nice enough to put up with me. So thank you. Well, um, yeah, I don't know what to say. I learned so, so much there. That's what, Now I'm going to cry. I learned a lot there. And so I think that... I think it's right for all of us to sort of acknowledge and answer for the way we could have done things better. But truly I did learn a lot there, you know? um, I I mean, it's, um, it's amazing to me how much of life was ignored because of my ridiculous selfish commitment 
to doing an, a daily show. What was that though? Is that your, is that just in you? Is that your, the way that you thought it, it could only be that way? Yeah. I, I, I didn't even think about it. I, I mean, uh, you must have uh, had, uh, once you're given a show, yeah. uh, especially if you've had one taken away from you, yeah. you, you want to make damn sure that it, you're concentrating on, on the project at hand. For sure. And, and I did it to a fault where everything else was excluded. And and I have regrets about that. Do you have a top 10 list of regrets about it? Yeah, <laughs> I got to go. Thanks. So <laughs> I mean, Dave, like I didn't have as much of a choice. I don't think Jimmy or Jimmy or James. is the other James. guy's name Jimmy too? James. The, it's yeah. James, James, but you James, can call James. him Jimmy. <laughs> or Seth, my friend Seth. It does feel all encompassing though at that network level, but I feel like maybe that's coming from another place and put on you. The Well, I, I felt, uh, and, 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 and uh, I'll just say this and then we'll uh, go on to something far more interesting. <laughs> um, I, I felt a lot of pressure, A, uh, because of uh, Carson was the, the role model. Carson was the standard. And I felt like I never quite lived up to that. So I felt pressure uh, there. Uh, I was uh, on opposite Jay Leno, who was uh, doing better ratings wise than was I. I felt pressure there. And I'd had one show uh, canceled out from under me. So I felt Mm -hmm. pressure there as well. Uh, And then we had gone from NBC, where they were used to uh, this day part uh, succeeding uh, to uh, CBS, which had not had much luck recently in this day part, uh, and knew nothing about CBS, so I felt pressure there. But I, 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 these are all just excuses. I'm telling you, if I had met uh, either of the three of you, uh, and I was uh, working at the Foot Locker, uh, you would have found me to be uh, a different person, uh, right. perhaps the 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 actual person I am. Uh, uh, God, if I could get that gig at Footlock. <laughs> I mean, I might know someone. I have a question because your comedians in cars getting coffee was the year before you announced your retirement from your show. And I wondered if that was like the first time where you had an experience where you're like, well, there's a world where I'm not killing myself and ign- at the, you know, price of all other, but I could mm-hmm. still talk to interesting people and do a different kind of thing. No, I, I was not aware of it uh, prior. It, it took me six months into the retirement to figure that out. Oh, because, really? Yeah. I, I just assumed that the person I was every day for 33 years was the person I was. Right. And and I, I, I think now back on things that happened and uh, uh, some of the uh, experiences uh, are just, um, I don't know, remarkable. And, and uh, you know, I, I wish they hadn't happened because, and they happened because of things I did. I'm, I'm sorry about that. But once everything settles down and you see the world and you see your family and you see what's going on, uh, I, I was still armored, you know? Uh, and then the armor falls away and you begin to understand yourself, others, what you should do, what you shouldn't do, ways you would rather be, uh, mistakes you made and 
on and on. It's a lot of introspection, and with most introspection, it's only interesting to the person who's introspecting. <laughs> well, I think that it's it's very interesting because obviously you are a huge part of American culture. Um, we've talked to Rosie O'Donnell too, and like both of you are, are very important in this culture. You don't have to be introspective. You don't have to be better. Like it's great that you're doing it, but the way that this world is set up, like if you decided just to be a piece of shit, people would be like, okay. And I think that it's cool for you to be like, you know what? I didn't like that about myself. I thought about it. And I am going to spend the rest of my time really being better. And also, that you're the second person who said that once my show was over, I really enjoyed coming back to Earth and meeting myself. And I think that that's really cool. That's very kind of you. And, and, and you. Uh, what's inconsistent about this whole thing is at a certain point in your life, this is all you want to do. Right. You can't afford glassware. Honest to God, where are you <laughs> drinking from? Everybody drinks out of mason jars now, Dave. That's it's hipster. It's cool. What, what's in there? Water. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dave, you're such a good storyteller. I know that you've talked about like this really big pivotal moment of retiring and regrets that you have. Um, and you've given me an opportunity to say, you know, that I learned a lot. And I admire you. And I also got in trouble when that biography was written about you. Because really? I, yeah, because I wouldn't say, the author took me out to lunch and I wouldn't say anything bad about you. And then he was like, Dave actually told me worse things about himself than you're saying here. And I was like, got my free turkey burger, got a lecture by the <laughs> but author. But also, I felt like that's how I knew I could really trust Casey. Is like, she would not, she didn't talk shit about you or Rosie or... Oh, my God. What's his name? Andy Cohen. Yes. Andy Cohen. <laughs> she talks so little about Andy, you forgot his name. I didn't, I didn't even remember it. Just but kidding, so, Andy. It's, a, it's, a, it's remarkable. It's a, a, an unusual trait in this day and age, and I think unusual to humanity generally. So thank you. I yeah, just, she's I listen, I just feel like if there's something that I want to say to you, maybe I'll say it to you, but I don't. there's no need for me to say it in a book. The, not yeah. just about you. Thank you. Anybody, um, but uh, you're you're story. a great storyteller. So why don't you tell us a story about a pivot in your life that we might not be familiar with? Well, you, you know, I was in prison. <laughs> what? You were not. No. Well, six years. That's not true. Yes, it is. No. When? Federal penitentiary in Kansas. David Letterman. Six years in prison. Hard time, too. It wasn't one of those country club prisons that everybody goes to these days. You know, a lot of things a man doesn't like to talk about. <laughs> That's fair. I bet. Um, <laughs> just the driest, I bet. <laughs> um, but for real, I, I know, I feel like I know pivot stories about you. Do you have, do you have like a fun one? Like, I love this story about when you were tapped to like guest host a game show. Do you remember this one? Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a, uh, uh, this was a great story uh, right up until the end of the story. But in, in those days, uh, everything's different, but I'm a, 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 a product of the comedy store. 
which uh, now is a completely different uh, place, a, a completely different enterprise, and is tremendous, uh, plays a tremendous part in the success of big, big comedy stars. But when I was there, it was just me and a bunch of dopes uh, telling our jokes. And so to augment, uh, we got no money in those days, uh, a guy named Tom Dreesen, a very good friend of mine, uh, had all connections where he, he knew of uh, production companies that needed uh, stand-ins, fill-ins, uh, d- d- dummies, uh, extras. And, and so one, one week we would go out and we would be in a, a commercial for Dodge and we the next week we'd be in a, a game show run-through. So that's how the game show stuff began. Uh, there was a guy named Ron Green, I believe, who was a game show producer, and we would come and try out his game show. He said, here's my idea and here's what we're going to do and you'll be the celebrities and you'll be the contestant. And we, we got paid seven bucks a day for this. And that was great because, you know, that was, that was gas and anything else. And you, you do it for a couple of weeks and you, it's extra money. And it Ooh, was through that. Uh, I did it and Jay Leno did it and Elaine Boozler did it and Tom Dreesen did it and Johnny Dark did it. And uh, I think Jeff Altman did it and many other people that I knew uh, were, uh, Shirley Hemphill was part of this. Uh, anyway, so you work your way up. They think, oh, geez, that went pretty well. And if the show gets produced, uh, you get maybe get to be a part of it. So uh, a couple of years after doing these game show run-throughs, they had a, a pilot they were going to do, and they said, me, I, Dave, you get to be the host of this uh, pilot. Now, we're not saying you'll be, if the show gets picked up, we're not saying you'll be the guy. <laughs> Uh, we want you to do the pilot. And I said, well, you know, in the nascent part of your career, you're agreeable to stuff because you don't know. And uh, so uh, we're standing backstage and I'm kind of excited. And uh, the, I'm standing next to Joanne Worley, who was the celebrity guest on that show. uh, And they're getting ready to, to introduce me. And she says, wow. She said, uh, uh, the, you're hosting a game show. And I said, yeah, yeah. And she says, well, uh, good luck. That's the only thing you'll ever do the rest of your life. And, and suddenly <laughs> all, all of this excitement, yeah. into, uh, paralyzing dread because I thought, Oh my God, she's right. I'll never, I, I'll just, all I will do is be a game show host. Now, also rude. I was going to say, also, I don't know also, Joanne Worley, but rude. Rude. Like, yeah. read the room. You're trying to or have a nice time. Being, <laughs> yeah, maybe it was rude. I, I no, it was it. like a bitchy actress thing to do. Well, anyway, <laughs> no, they didn't pick it up, and I went on to other things. But if you look at that uh, Pat Sajak, uh, <laughs> I mean, this guy was, he used to be the weatherman at uh, KNBC. And very funny, very, very funny. And I think he had a late night show at uh, CBS as well. He did for a very and short he, time. I remember. He's been on that uh, on that uh, wheel of fortune. Yeah. Uh, for, for like forty years. Yes. And uh, it just shows with barely a personality what you can do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, love- I don't know, uh, Casey. That that story. I, I but uh, I don't know if it was pivotal. It was only frightening. I was scared silly that, oh, gosh, in, again, in pursuing something that I thought was fun and beneficial, 
may have just collapsed around me like a burning <laughs> building. But you were doing, so you were doing stand-up and stuff. Was a late night show always what you wanted to do? I mean, I know you were a weatherman yeah. and you had like, you know, you, that, so a late night show was always the goal. You were like Merv Griffin well, and- Yeah, yeah, or a talk show because I, 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 can't, I can't do anything else. Right. You know, I, I, can't, I can't act. Sure. I, uh, you I were said, great in Mork and Mindy. <laughs> One of the worst experiences of my life. Uh, I, I remember the uh, the final. You know, they when when they do a uh, they do a, a dress rehearsal show and then they do the the real show. Mm-hmm. And in between, uh, Howard Short, Howard Storm, somebody sure. like that was the director, very well known director in the world of situation comedies. And uh, I'm in the makeup chair for the real real show, and he says, uh, "You know, we've been doing this all week." Uh, you have one last chance to get it right. <laughs> no, <laughs> Dave. I, I I think it's there's two things that you've brought up that have been very wild to me is the cost of things like seven dollars a day is like what minimum wage is now. But when you wrote the check for ten dollars to go to the airport, if you're in the airport in New York, it costs five dollars to get to your plane. <laughs> so Can that I, thing, well, Dave. Here, I'll say so, I'll say something about you. When I worked for you, God bless you. You were so out of touch with how thing how much things cost <laughs> because you would be like, "Can you go get me a pair of jeans? Like I ripped my jeans. Can you go buy me a pair of jeans?" And you'd give me like eleven dollars cash, and I'd be like, "When was I talking about jeans?" And that, so that's, but by the way, so that might be the truth of the comedy store guy who ended up being the head of HBO. He was like. Fucking ten dollars to get to JFK? No, dude. By the same drug token, addict. Yeah. Sometimes you'd be like, I, I'm craving some soup. Will you go get me soup and then give me like two hundred dollars? And I'd be like, All right. I hope he says keep the change. <laughs> At some point, I had uh, recently changed residences in Manhattan and had no uh, bedding. And there was a, a young woman uh, who was, in, I think, an intern. A uh, very nice kid, and uh, her goal of the day was to go buy sheets. And she went and came back and and said, "Here's your, here's your sheets." And I said, "Oh, oh, geez, that's great, thank you." How much were they? And she said, three thousand dollars." Whoa! Yeah, that's. And I said, I, I had the same reaction. I I didn't know sheets cost three thousand dollars. I mean, they can. They can. I don't they know can. If I they can also cost to. thirty dollars. Yeah. Or or guys, there's. Why would they? Why three thousand dollars? Thread, thread count, thread count, thread count, name brand, and even thread, thread count. count. It could just well, be. You a name know, brand. I'm all about thread count. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Dave, it's 2020. There's a pandemic. You retired, but now you have this Netflix show. What's your life like? What's happening? The Netflix show has been great, uh, a wonderful experience for me. And for I, I hope for the people that we worked with, I hope it was an altogether different experience than my previous show. But it's been a lot of fun, and I, I would uh, I would like to continue doing something uh, like that. I got to meet people that uh, just really really impressive uh, uh, people that I knew of but didn't know, and uh, that experience uh, for me has been has been great because we we can. I like talking to them about things that we have in common and things we don't have in common. And uh, it, it's been greatly beneficial for me therapeutically, uh, emotionally to talk to these uh, other people 
that are wildly successful and uh, find out find out what they are as actual human beings, not just show business figures. So that's been great. It's Is been- that part of the like introspection of the time after this show where you're trying so. to like yeah. figure your own self out in a way? I think so. But, but also it's uh, the, the, the old show, as, as you would know, you got six, eight, 10 minutes maybe. Yeah. And good night. Yeah. yeah. I think that's one thing interesting about you. And I've said that people ask about you all the time. Um, what's he really like? And what was that experience really like? And I always do say that you were a very paternal figure. So I hope you give yourself at least a little bit of credit for that, you know, in between being introspective. But you were, I feel like you were very protective of me, sometimes in a hilarious way. Yeah. You well, hated you hated my boyfriend. I don't know if you remember that. He worked at VH1, and you'd always be like, what is he, a VJ? His hair is insane. I do not like the sight of him. But we're married. He's the father of my children. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes. And then also, I don't know if you remember this, but we were here in Los Angeles doing The Late Show for, out of CBS. Um, television city and you had gone to rehearsal and you came back from rehearsal and you were like Casey get in here I want to talk to you about something and I was like oh god like what did I do am I in trouble so I went into your office and you were like sit down uh you know how guys are there's a lot of young guys that work on this show and they uh like to gossip and talk just as much as anyone And I heard a lot of the guys talking about how they were going to go to a tattoo parlor tonight and get tattoos. (laughs) And, uh, you know, because they're legal here and they're not legal in New York City. And then they got around to saying like, hey, should we invite Casey? And one of the guys said, "Uh, we can invite her. She'll probably go. She already has a tattoo. And you were like, so I just want you to know that some guys that work here are spreading a rumor that you have a tattoo. (laughs) (laughs) And then I was like... I do. (laughs) Do you want to see it? And you were like, no, no, no. Do your parents know? Oh, my God. Did you get this on my watch? (laughs) Oh, my God. That's so cute. It's uh, it's like I'm the youth minister. (laughs) Crazy. With the kids. Jesus. What an asshole. No, it's nice. It made me laugh so hard. And you were just, I remember you saying like, your parents let you come to New York and entrusted me to like make sure that you're okay here in the big city. And then you're like, I find out that you get a tattoo. And I was like, I got this tattoo when I was 18 years old. My mom also has a tattoo. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, yeah, okay. I had to have you come in and sit down and talk it over. Yes. Thank you, Father Dave. <laughs> it was very funny to me and and endearing. I liked that you cared that the boys Can were talking about Can I just say, though, me. this? Because I was, uh, I started in entertainment when I was mm, 19 years old. So yeah. I appreciate it. Well, that's that's good. It's 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 glad that that has uh, filtered into the system, even and this is a few years ago. But that's great. Well, that was so long ago. But wait, do you did you ever feel like that kind of responsibility? Like for Casey, no. you didn't think you did. You weren't no, paying attention. I, that was just something that happened. No, I, I, I honestly, uh, I, I I was just uh, like I said earlier. I was so focused on. Uh, is this show going to be okay? 
what did I screw up tonight? What did I screw up last night? And that, that just fed on itself. And, and I just was day to day oblivious to most things except the show. Uh, and you know, that's the source of what I, you know, I, I, sh- I shouldn't have behaved that way. And, and I, I, I don't know. It, it, I think if if you have the kind of ego that needs to go into show business, that's the way you're going to behave. Well, interesting. Or you know, you just needed more love from your parents. Hi, how you doing? <laughs> My name is Busy Philip. Um, Dave, wh- when you were leaving your show, did they ask you who you thought should get it? Did it? Did any women occur to you? No, no. They, I mean, the, I announced that I was leaving Monday. They hired Stephen Colbert. I was oh, really? on. I said goodbye on a Friday. Monday, Stephen had the job, so no, there's not a great deal of. Uh, well, let's get Dave up here and see what he thinks. No, that, that didn't happen. I was out the door. That uh, seems weird to me. Yeah, me too. I thought. I thought so. <laughs> And, and then, then people started telling me. I remember uh, uh, being at the Kennedy Airport with my family and some guys. How much did it cost to you to get to that airport? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> ten, ten bucks, really. Uh, so so guys come up to me and they're holding uh, seats, theater seats, like four or five of them. They each have two or three. And they, they want me to sign the theater seats. And I said, well, I don't, I don't, he said, well, these, we took these out of your theater because they had been tossed into a dumpster. So they, the next day they started demolishing the set and throwing the stuff out on the sidewalk. Uh, That broke my heart because that set was so beautiful. Kathleen Anchors had built that set. Oh, Kathleen Anchors, God bless her. Yeah. Uh, But I understand that the the facility now is they found things that had been covered up in the, the remodeling that we did that. Uh, it's just uh, even lovelier now. But uh, yeah, yeah, I felt like, anyway, no, they didn't ask me about other people. But I, I, I now looking at it, uh, we, we have all of the people that you named, and I know and like all of them, but, you know, it would have been, been cool if we had, had a woman in, in one of those uh, seats. And, you know, it's, it's <laughs> I remember the first time being on, a, on an airplane and the captain was a female, and you thought, oh, Jesus, a woman, are we going to be all right? What's going to happen now? Uh, and, of course, yeah, everything is fine, and there's no reason. <laughs> well, I would, I would hope so. But it's the same way with a, an 1130 talk show. What's the problem? The culture obviously seems like it skews so male. And I, I think, I mean, I think it has to do with, you know, who runs the networks and the studios and shit but I just wondered did you have like a woman that you could point to and be like what do you think about that yeah we we had uh quite a few women on the staff in in positions of power uh creative power and uh administrative power uh and and we talked about this uh all the time I don't know how many executive producers we had that were women and um it it just I relied on them heavily because they they seemed to have you know a better sense of what was going on than certainly than, than I did. Yeah, and it came to me later uh, than it should have. But I don't know why others uh, weren't more aware of that at the time. But you know, it worked out okay, except if you're a woman. <laughs> that is true. That's one thing I want to say because I I think that. Um 
all late night shows, that's always a conversation about, uh, you know, there's not enough women, particularly writing the comedy and hosting the comedy. But at late show, uh, Jude Brennan, Barbara Gaines, Maria Pope, uh, Kathy Mavrakakis. Uh, yes. Yeah. Jude, yes. So just. Did Nell Scoville write? Nell Scoville was a writer early at late, at late night, but for a very short oh, time. Right. But you guys still talk to each other, Dave, right? You and Nell? Yes. Uh, we exchanged emails about a year ago. So we're, we're pretty close. <laughs> we're very tight. <laughs> and of course, you know, I don't know if you feel comfortable talking about Meryl Marco, but she was instrumental in sort of shaping the original show, correct? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Uh, she and I were, uh, as the kids say, romantically involved. We hooked up. <laughs> Oh, okay. Now I understand. Now, now we get, get it. it. Yeah, now okay. I get it. <laughs> and um, very, very funny, very smart. And uh, we were kind of doing her show, and yeah. and all I was kind of worried about was uh, if I had an idea, I would take it to Merrill. And then, but she she came up with stupid human tricks, stupid pet tricks, and a lot of the, the video pieces we did in in those days, uh, she was responsible for. She was. Uh, fantastically creative and prolific. And uh, she was in charge of the writers. So I, I never really had to worry about it. And Do you ever feel like you work best under pressure? Is that who you are? Like, do you work? Uh, yeah, I like I like to think uh, uh, I work best under pressure. And then, then I remember they asked me to host the Academy Awards. And that changed <laughs> my impression of how I am under pressure. Uh, I remember <laughs> to be that. Fair, to be fair, it still will not go down in history as being the worst. So. <laughs> hey, thanks. Thanks for You're the welcome. back. You're welcome. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I remember you flew right to London. I, wa- I watched it in London because we were doing the show from uh, Thames Studios in London. And so I'd mm-hmm. been there for a couple weeks. And I remember getting up at whatever ridiculous time to watch the Oscars and then just being like, it doesn't seem like he's enjoying this. I feel like. <laughs> <laughs> and then I went out uh, first thing in the morning and bought a rugby ball because I was like, this will cheer him up. <laughs> when he lands, I'm going to ask him if he wants to have a catch with this rugby ball. Did you, uh, uh, did, uh, did Rosie ever take you to London? Not Casey? to not to London. Uh, and busy. Did you ever uh, take uh, Casey to London? I took her to I took her to a fancy resort in Mexico. <laughs> yeah. that's right, that's nice. Not for the show, just for fun, because we're friends. <laughs> just for, just just for fun. Dave, I have a very I have a very sweet photo of you and I chatting on the on the. Thames. We were standing on the bridge chatting in London and I love it. It's one of my favorite photos and I love it because I remember that it looks like we're having the deepest conversation in the world and we're talking about bologna sandwiches. (laughs) (laughs) Right there. That's the story of me. (laughs) I want to talk about something. Yeah. What is it, Dave? You ever had a bologna sandwich? (laughs) Dave, thank you so much for doing this uh, podcast, but also thank you so much for, um, you know, giving me a shot when I was feral. Well, Casey, you're, you're so kind, and, and, and it's, it's just exactly what I talked about earlier. Your impression of your time there 
is is mostly new to me and surprisingly positive. <laughs> so I, I can't thank you enough for that. And, and busy, what can I say about you? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and Shintara, God bless you. Get a car. <laughs> I mean, if you buy me one, I get it. No, <laughs> Dave. No, I didn't say that. Send her a car, Dave. Not buying anybody a car. Unplug this thing. <laughs> Dave, David Letterman, thank you. Thank you thank very you much, Missy. So much. Casey, thank you. Stay Bye-bye. safe. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, Bye. turn this thing off now. How do you turn it off? <laughs> Bye. Bye. Oh, Thrive Cosmetics. We love you so much. Just really love Thrive. I got to say, you got to say, I've talked enough, right, about the uh, Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. You know how much I love it, how obsessed I am with it. I mean, like, I find tubes of that mascara, I'm not kidding, like, all over. Because I, because I buy so many, so I never want to be without. I love it so much. It literally looks like I'm wearing lash extensions. People cannot believe what my lashes look like when I am wearing that liquid lash extensions mascara. But also, I love the sheer strength hydrating lip tint because it's very hydrating with a like little hint of a tint that applies evenly, lasts up to six hours. It's very effortless. You don't have to have a mirror, glides on smoothly. There are six different tints to choose from, but it's very lightweight. It's balmy. It's non-sticky. It just is like, I don't know. I just love it. I love that. For me, honestly, those two products, the Sheer Strength Hydrating Lip Tint, Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara, that's all you need. It's all you need. I love them both so much. And I just love Thrive Cosmetics. You know, it's 100% certified vegan, cruelty-free beauty products made with clean, skin-loving ingredients, no parabens, no sulfates, no phthalates, all without compromising performance. But also, they have the word cause, C-A-U-S-E, in their name for a reason. It's a part of their mission. Every purchase supports organizations that help communities thrive, such as those battling domestic abuse, homelessness, cancer, and more. If you haven't tried Thrive Cosmetics yet, it's time for you to do it to see for yourself what I'm talking about. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order when you visit thrivecosmetics.com slash best. That is Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash best for 20% off your first order. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Listen. Sometimes in life, we're faced with a tough moment, you know, and sometimes the path forward isn't always clear. Sometimes you're dealing with decisions about career, relationships. And here's what I'll tell you. Therapy helps you stay connected to what you really want while you're navigating your life so you can move forward with confidence and excitement. 
And here's the deal. I am a firm believer in therapy. I think that we all can use a little therapy. Even if you're a person where you're like, I don't have any trauma. I'm okay. Like I feel, I'm telling you, it's a lot. It's all a lot to to navigate, you know, the world, <laughs> the pressures, raising children, trying to figure out like what to eat. I mean, all, <laughs> all of it. But it's helpful to learn positive coping skills. That is like sort of a broader benefit of therapy is that then like if you are faced in the future with something huge, you have the tools. You're able to navigate it more clearly. You're able to navigate it in an easier way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, if you're like, oh, I'd like to find a therapist. I just don't know where to start. Why don't you give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible and suited to your schedule. You fill out a brief questionnaire, you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. I think BetterHelp is really a great service and company. I think you should give it a shot. Let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com busy today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash busy. Please, please enjoy Renee Elise Goldsberry. In case you didn't get a chance to see us on Fallon last night, Renee told a story that in the entirety of shooting Girls by Veva, <laughs> none of us, including Meredith Gardino, the creator, Tina Fey, nobody knew, which was that she was in a failed girl group that couldn't get a record deal. And they had a song that a male, like, songwriter wrote for them. Yes, I was. And she lived the story of Girls 5 Eva. I probably discounted it because it didn't happen. Like, my life is filled with things that didn't happen. And most people don't ask you about what didn't happen. They ask you about what did. So you kind of Mm. forget, you know, you kind of forget. And girl, that, I mean, you don't have time, but, but, but I just was, I've been, my girlfriends from the time, like my, not my singer or whatever friend, just my friends that were around me at that time have been texting me all day. They're like, girl, I remember. And I remember so much. I literally, I was just telling my friend some of the things, remembering some of the moments of my girl group. And we, we have a season two. Well, but, but actually, <laughs> but actually, Renee, this is exactly what the show, this show, this podcast is kind of about. It is about the things that didn't happen. Yes. Because obviously we all know that you are Grammy and Tony Award winner, that you are Angelica Schuyler from love, Hamilton. I love to hear you say that, Busy. So wait, let's go back to the girl group that never was. Okay. In, in the mid mid 90s. What year are we talking here? Girl, I don't even remember. I Let's think say it was like 95. Um, I think it's like 97, 8. 97, ish. 98. Okay. Yeah. I and think 97, 8. Okay. But so Ally McBeal started around 97. So the girl group was pre Ally McBeal. And after college, did you move to LA to try to pursue? Yes. Okay. So let's, so let's just start there. So night, so you graduate from Carnegie Mellon. I'm sure you were a star. 
I, in my mind, actually, no, I, I was, I was humbled by then. I, I thought I would start growing up by then. I, I just knew, I knew a lot of people that were way more talented than me by talented than me by then. So I was, I was adequately humbled, but I, I had, I still had big dreams and I had a degree and uh, yeah. And I had friends like Billy Porter and, you know, just all, all kinds of really talented, really good friends from school that were, you know, were making it happen. And they'd let, let us like crash on their couches and, and, and figure out New York city. So I came straight to New York. Actually, Billy got me a job, but this is a digression. Um, being, uh, understudying Chandra Wilson actually in a play, the movie paper moon. Yes. Yeah. There was a musical, um, make paper moon. It's a brilliant musical that, that didn't happen. There's a lot of different, that's why I forget this stuff. There are so many didn't happens. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, Chandra Wilson, uh, had the, the lead of the Imogene, the black girl in this play. I, this is totally not where we're going with the story. But I love it. Something else. And, uh, and I, they needed an understudy and I, Billy Porter, they asked Billy Porter cause we used to call him the mayor of, 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 of New York city. Nobody, he wasn't famous, but everybody knew he should be. Yeah. And, uh, they called him. He's not a casting director. They're like, who do you know that can be funny and sing this part? Cause Chandra Wilson you know, was pregnant. She was going to have her first child, who's now probably 37 years old. I'm kidding. Because um, <laughs> that's how long ago this shit was. Anyway, um, and yeah, and so I got this part. So I had a job coming to New York City and I was doing theater. I had that role. I, I was just doing, and I started doing regional theater and tours. I was just a theater girl and I was on my way and it just crossed my mind one time that I missed school. I wasn't done being in school. You know, I, I just felt like my friends that don't do what I do, you know, in two years, she's going to be a doctor. She's going to be a lawyer and I'm going to have done two more plays. You know what I'm saying? And mm-hmm. I just felt, I felt like I missed that. I just missed it. Not that you have to go to school to do this, but I missed it. Also, very importantly, a very good friend of mine said to me, Renee, what do you want to be? What do you want to be? What do you want to do? I was like, everything. I want to do everything. And he was like, but if you had to pick, you know, what do you want to be? I'm like, well, I want to be, I want to be a recording artist. I want to be a movie star. I want to be a everything. Right. And he was like, well, if you want to do everything, I also said Broadway, by the way. And he was like, if you want to do everything, um, why are you doing it like this? Why are you starting with Broadway? It's like, you know, you're, you're sitting in New York city auditioning against the most talented people in the world to understudy a soap opera star. Like if you want to be a recording Ooh. artist and a movie mm-hmm. star and a Broadway star, why don't you, you're already, you're already, you're already over the hill to be a recording artist. Alicia Keys is like 12. You know what I'm saying? You're yeah. like already over the hill in your twenties. You need to go to, you need to figure out how to be a recording star. So that's why I went back to school. And, um, and, and the, my big pivot that I wanted to share with you is I learned from watching the Oprah Winfrey show. Do you remember, uh, uh, show? Well, Do you remember, remember it? That? It raised me. It raised <laughs> me, Renee. Do you remember the time when Oprah just was so aware of her power that she stopped yes. having specialists on? Yes. She just was the specialist. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I left New York. I, I, I went to visit my friend in LA who was in law school, one of my best friends. And as soon as I got there, she said, oh, by the way, I'm on spring break. And the bitch left me in her apartment by myself. And, uh, and so I started watching Oprah because she was my friend and she didn't know it. And she had this show about failures, people that are failures, right? And the whole premise of the show was 
you know, why is somebody a failure? So, you know, there's no definition of failure. You just have to actually invite people on that believe they're failures. So she did, and she just had a chalkboard and it was her. And she asked them what they did at each stage of their life. And, and on the chalkboard, what you could see is at the top of the chalkboard, they had options and every decision they made along the road reduced their options. So anybody that considered themselves a failure were really people that were really dead end because they were in a life that they didn't feel like they have, they had an option to do anything else. You see what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. Of course. This is, by the way, guys, this, this, this is is amazing. Right. Yeah. Chalkboard. I'm sitting there by myself at whatever age I am in 1994, 95 in my best friend's apartment by myself in, in, you know, Calabasas. Okay. And, and, And I'm just like crying because I realize. Um, this thing, which is everybody really is just the moment before, like really our entire life is I'm in third grade because I was in second grade. Like there's only a few times in your life that you actually, and maybe people never do it, that you actually take yourself out of the current of life that you didn't even start by the way and choose something else. Right. Oh my God. It just hits me right in my twenties in this apartment. And I, and I say, I've got to go. I got to do something else. I've got to go back to school. Right. I've got to, I'm, I'm not going to just do another plan, another plan, another plan. Not that I don't want to, but I've got to figure out how to do something different. And the reason why I chose school is because I felt that was the way to have another career. Uh, you know, like I just knew how to network in a school. So I basically started calling schools. And next thing I know, I was getting a master's degree in vocal jazz at the university of Southern California. And I called my parents. I called my friends from school, like Billy. And he's like, why are you, what are you, why are you going back to school? This is ridiculous. Um, <laughs> but the reason why I did it is because I wanted to be, I wanted to have my own voice, right? I wanted to figure out how not to sing like whatever girl just originated the role that I wanted to play. I mm. wanted to sing like Renee, right? Yeah. So that's where I was in, in LA trying to be, trying to learn how to play this acoustic guitar that's actually right behind me. <laughs> And, uh, and with the dream to be in Lilith Fair. Does anybody remember Lilith yes. Fair? Yes. Lilith Fair. I had the t-shirt. I went. Girl, I, I was just wanted like, to be barefoot with an acoustic guitar and sing my heart out. I just wanted oh to God. tell my story. Girl, I have songs with a Z, right? <laughs> I just wanted to do that so bad. And so I graduated. So Allie McBeal was God's gift to me. I used to say to feed the beast at home because what I was doing was sitting in my best friend's uh, backyard writing music that nobody was signing, right? right. Um, but, uh, but I had to tell them I was doing something with two degrees. I had a master's degree and an undergrad degree. And I, had, and, I was, and I was singing in a band called Charisma with a Z. Yes. Uh, at, at clubs in, you know, what, what's, you know, what is it? What is it? What is the, those, those towns on north of LA that like Pomona? Pomona. Pomona at Pomona. You know, Pomona at, the, at the casinos up there. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> like a hundred dollars a night. That's what I was doing. Oh but like God. what I tell my parents that I was doing was that I was on Allen McBeal, which really was a great fun job, but it wasn't like what I was doing. I was trying to get signed and I, any by any means necessary. And one day somebody, one of my girlfriends, Kenna Ramsey. Uh, called me and said, do you want to be in this girl group with me? And I said, shit, yeah, I ain't got nothing else to do today, but write these songs ain't nobody heard. And uh, so, yeah, we just started. And it was exciting, you guys, because these guys, there's two guys, they dressed us up. They paid for it. How did they they find Kenna? Kenna, first of all, she is the singingest girl you've ever met in your life. She's drop-dead gorgeous, 
drop dead gorgeous and she can sing like Patti LaBelle or anybody else. She can sing anything effortlessly. She's all of my friends. We all sang backup. She sings backup for everybody. David Foster, yeah. everybody. She's one of them. And she, she called me. She's like, do you want to do this? I said, yes, I do. There was another girl that was already in it. She was the girlfriend of the producer. Okay. She's like this tall model looking, really brown skinned black woman that sang. She had a low register. And every time she sang, I wanted to sleep with her. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, and she had like that low voice. She was super sexy and she was his girlfriend. So she was in. And then there was Kenny, Kenny, because she could sing to the stratosphere. And then there was me, because I don't know. And then I, I invited in my friend Billy, who I met in Toronto, who could play the piano and sing. And she's racially ambiguous. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and she, and the, and the record label paid that, you know, she couldn't get into the country to work. This is how legit this shit is. They brought her here on one of those things. Yeah, they pay 10 grand. It's at least, it's a a work visa for entertainment, specialized entertainment. And you have to have like a very legit company has to sign off on you and write a letter to the government and then additionally pay $10,000. Saying yes. that nobody else can do, can do what the job, what you're going to do. do. I yeah. was a hero. She quit all of her work, all of her jobs in Toronto and Canada. And she came to LA to be in this group. And they took us to this little cheap clothing things on Venice Beach. And they put little rags of clothes on us. And, and this is what I forgot till my girlfriends reminded me today. We used to sit down in interviews and talk and you have to, you have to, they tell you how old you are, by the way. And that's, <laughs> not girl that's not just for girl groups. Anytime you get a record deal, I learned you have to be as young as possible. So like, if, let me tell you, if you were like 35, they said, or 45, they tell they, you started as 35. If you were me, that was like 26, 27, 28, they said, you're 21. You're 2021. That's what they said I was. If somebody tells you at 27 years old that you have to pretend to be 20, every, and you clearly, I talk a lot and I did, this isn't new. I've always talked like this, <laughs> but every, um, every interview, they would ask me a question and I, I every my, 10 years of my life experience was negated. So I couldn't answer. They'd be like, da, 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 and, I, and I would be like, oh, when I was in, oh, when I, I, I literally was mute though. I could not, I didn't speak in interviews because I was, I couldn't remember what I would have known at 20. Right. You couldn't, right. you couldn't talk about college. You couldn't talk about the fact that you had a master's degree. I couldn't talk about even living outside. After, I, I was like, can I mention that I graduated from high school? I couldn't even, re- I couldn't speak. Right. So oh. the, I was dressed, I was whatever. Anyway, so they wrote, wrote this hit song for us that, that I sang on Fallon last night. And um, I liked <laughs> the song. It never even crossed my mind how ridiculous the words were because it was such a Casey, bop. It was such a great Casey, bop. Tell yeah. her, Renee, tell Casey what the lyrics are. Yes, you can. Yes, you can find you a good man. But when you do, you got to treat him right. Make sure <laughs> your love is out of sight now. That's the whole hook. Is that not a hook? That's a hook. But it's come a hook. on. <laughs> yes, you can find yourself a good man. But when but you do, when you, do. you got to treat him right. Make sure. Make sure. Make sure. Your love is out of sight now. Okay. <laughs> Clearly, we did not write the words ourselves. But anyway, um, yeah, so that was our hit. And uh, and this is what's so crazy. Uh, we record, I remember I recorded my vocals. Um, and I think we were like the fourth or fifth iteration of this group because I had to record over some other girl's vocals. Oh, my God. Yeah, oh my we're God. About, that's how replaceable we are, how replaceable we are. Uh, they lived in this mansion. The producer had this huge mansion and, and, and the girlfriend lived in there with him. 
And I remember I was recording my vocals late at night in the studio and like something, some, the wall made some sound and he just picked up a random hammer and just started banging at the wall and then stopped. I only tell you all that to say, just remember that strange moment in the mansion. And now okay. I'm going to cut to the, um, our moment with the, uh, when we're in a hotel room to meet the A&R executive, right? Yeah. So we're all dressed up with our little clothes on and we're ready. We all know the parts of our songs and how we're going to kill. We've done this meeting a bunch of times to get this far. And we've just wowed them every time. They kept saying Destiny's Child, Destiny's Child, Destiny's Child, Destiny's Child. And, um, and then the head of A&R comes in and it's a woman, a beautiful black woman probably in her thirties and we're like all in her twenties and we have no clothes on and she's wearing clothes. And, uh, and I'm like, Oh, when I saw her, I'm like, it's my sister. I'm like, we about to get this record deal. That's what I thought. This was the last stage. And before the woman sits in the chair, one of the girls, one of the bandmates, the one that was the girlfriend of the producer says, when are you due? (gasps) No. And she said, what? She said, when is your baby due? And she said, I'm not pregnant. And then this silence that you're about to hear was like the next 10 minutes of our entire interview. <laughs> I can't even do this. I silence. can't. But I this can't. is what I didn't get to tell you last night on Fallon. Um, the re- this is what I found out when the, when the thing crashed and burned and it crashed and burned immediately. And that's why I forgot. The reason why she asked that question is not because the woman looked like she's pregnant, but because she was pregnant and she didn't tell us and they just wanted to get her in the record deal so that we could sign it so then she could have her baby. So then we would have all sat around like owned, like, you know, like property for two years and not be able to do anything. That's the first thing. And then I found out that the mansion that they lived in did not belong to them. They were squatters. What? <laughs> did you know <sighs> that there literally are people that just go through the newspaper and find houses that are foreclosed on, break in, move some shit in, and then it takes and like change the locks, change, they the, change locks. the locks, right? And the, and the California is not going to do they, they first have to figure out that you're there. Then they have to start proceedings to get you out. So you can live in a mansion for like three or four months and then you just move to the next one. Oh. So I'm up there recording. There's literally like, that's how fraudulent they were. And the only reason why I ever came out is because it crashed and burned. And if it hadn't crashed and burned, that would have been the start of another girl group that probably wasn't that different from any other girl group that ever makes it. I'm just saying. And also, that's wild. But also, you would have been in business with legit fraudulent Fraudulent like fraudsters. Which I don't know is that different from people's experience in the recording industry. But I have to tell you just to jump cut, you know, the the reason why I went back to school when I told you that whole thing about the 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 pyramid Mm -hmm. and the the reverse pyramid that Oprah taught me, you know, yeah her show. Which Um, now we all know and we're all thinking about. It's like Mm -hmm. there's no definition of failure. I'm just wanna bring this home. It really is it really is just your feeling that you don't have options in your life. That's really what it is. You could be in a, in a you could be living in a mansion that you actually bought and feel that way. And so the, 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 what I learned is that what you want to do when you're making decisions in your life, you want to make decisions looking not at the moment you're going into, but like the X missions, right? Yeah. Like what are my options going to be when I graduate from this stage of my life? And mm-hmm. if, if you know if it gives you more options than you had when you going when you went in, your pyramid is going in the right direction. So when wow. I'm making decisions about what I want to do, my question tends to be things like what will this, what kind of options and opportunities will this yield me when it's over? This is, guys, this is gold. Also, 
Should you have a talk show? I was going to say, I feel like you should have a talk did you show ever with think, a chalkboard. Did you ever think about girl, that? I got a talk show in my house every day, girl. In my house <laughs> every day. I ain't got no sponsors. Okay. I don't, I don't know why you don't have work. Every day with all this experience and a great, you know, I don't have any of that. But in my own life, if you call my house <sighs> and I answer the phone, we are, we are having a talk show. I can't help it. Wow. I'm, Renee, you know I'm obsessed with you. Um, But I love you. I love you. Renee, thank you so much. So so nice to see you. The day that we were talking to our guests, I was like, kind of like, I don't really feel like doing this. I I like almost called, I almost called Casey and said like, I don't think so. I don't think that I can do this. Yeah. And because it was Paul F. Tompkins and Jeannie had had Tompkins, I thought, well, even if I just got on the Zoom with them and said nothing, it would be fine because I've been such good friends with them for so long yeah. that I know they would be chill with it. Yeah. But as it turns out, they are just infectious, lovely, infectious in the best way. Not in a not in a COVID <laughs> not in a COVID nineteen way. Uh, I'm very 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 happy to talk to you guys. I love you both so much. I love Lizzie, you. We Lizzie. love you too. And I we're mean, thrilled to be here. I know. Is, I know that your audience like, was like, "Get more nobodies on the show." <laughs> and we're here. I don't think anyone thinks of either of you as a nobody. Janie and Paul are Janie and Paul are also friends of mine. You guys are you hold the distinction of being and tell me if this is like am I alone in this? Viewers you can you can write in about this. Um <laughs> I am terrible. I'm not the best at having friends. Like, I feel like it's a skill I learned in adulthood. Um, It wasn't something that I was always like the third wheel of like a best friend pair, Mm. like throughout my life. (laughs) Um, And so anywho, anywho, I have a weird, like a lot of people have best friends and I've always been like, huh, what's that like to have a best friend? But you are two of the people that I will say, oh, they're like two of my best friends and then people are like oh you're best friends with Paul and Janie and then I'll always clarify well I never said that I'm their best friend <laughs> I said that they're my best friend like like we're going around issuing like corrections like yeah like I feel like <laughs> oh I know I, she says this but it's actually <laughs> it's it's one-sided I just Guys, always want to clarify really I no I do t- I want to clarify too because here's here's the thing I don't, I know that, I know what best is a designator for. I know what it means. Mm-hmm. However, I believe that best friends can be many and all Absolutely. types. Oh, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. I Agreed. mean, people frequently think you can only have one best friend, but I just don't think that's true. No, no I, I don't agree. think that's true either. My issue I is I never want to speak for the other party in my best friendship. Oh, I, make, I can only I, say yeah. who is who is the best friend to me, but I mm-hmm. cannot oh, yeah. say I'm a best friend to them. I would like to right. give permission to both Busy and Casey to freely use whatever designation of friendship you Absolutely. want with me. Because I love you You could say both. we're work friends. That's fine with me. <laughs> that's rude. That feels rude. That feels rude. No, don't say that. I don't like that. That sounds sad. I actually 
actually, now I'm upset. (laughs) Um, It was going so well. It can turn on a dime, guys. Just you know. (laughs) Can I, may I say this? I'm surprised to hear that, uh, to hear Casey say that uh, uh, friendship is a skill that she learned in adulthood. Because, and that I, I, I feel like you have uh, thousands of friends and, um, that you are, you are close with many, many people. I, I, that's, that's the way I've always thought of you. Same. Oh, that's nice. I think you and I had a really like, we, because I was a fan of yours before we were friends and I just felt like, like, I don't often feel like I'm in the weeds, you know, and I felt like the first five times I ever talked to you, I was like, what the fuck am I even saying? Like, then I would be like, you know what? You're just getting in your own head about this. And then people would be like, what the fuck were you even saying to him? No. (laughs) Well, drop those people. (laughs) What were you talking about? And so, yeah. So like the first five times I ever met you, I was like, well, if he wants to continue talking to me after this, then, you know, He's just a very, very exceedingly kind person because I'm just, I don't even know what I'm saying. See, my memory is that we connected pretty quickly. Yes. And that I would, when I would, this is, of course, for people who don't know, Casey and I met doing Best Week Ever, the original Best Week Ever on uh, Video Hits 1. And um, (laughs) I was one of many, many talking heads. And I can't imagine you knew me from anything other than that. Um, but no, you would see, what did you know me from? From Mr. Show. But I mean, I, when people say they're a fan of me from Mr. Show, I assume they mean they're a fan of all of Mr. Show. And because yes. I was a part of it, they're a fan of me as a result of that. You know that I was like maniacal about Mr. Show though. Like it was like, we were the only people that had cable our age, Matt and I, my husband and I, and like people would come over to watch Mr. Show and every week it would end up, it would be rough because I would be like, I would start like laying down rules about the level of volume that people could talk at. And so I would just be like, if you can't shut the fuck up during Mr. Show, you need to take your six pack that you brought. And get out of here. I told you, I don't know how to have friends. You've never Wait, seen Jane, it. You've never seen it. She's never no. seen it. And I got to do a part in the reboot <laughs> in, with Bob and David. Thank you, Bob Odenkirk for that. <laughs> um, that's I, amazing. Like, I was not a super fan like Casey, but I don't even really watch anything anymore. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Busy yeah. thought that Busy um, came in in the middle of uh, the Tiger Woods documentary, and she thought it was about the Night Stalker. <laughs> I thought it was about... I thought... <laughs> what? Okay. All right. Let me... This is... By the way, we'll probably have to cut this out because we've already told this story on the podcast, I think. But... It never stops being funny. (laughs) Okay, I came home from work. All I knew is that Mark had been talking about watching the Night Stalker documentary. The Tiger Woods one wasn't even on my radar, okay? Sure, sure. I didn't even know it existed. And then I walked into the room, and this is the snippet that I hear as I walk in. He had a a van that was parked just, (laughs) just in the back of the parking lot of the golf course and... I, you know, he would take, he would take women 
in there. The dad, because it's a that's his. It's about dad. the dad. They were talking yeah. about the dad. I literally yeah. was like, wait, I didn't, ha- I didn't know anything about like the Night Stalker with women and the golf course. Right. And he was a golf yeah. pro, and I was like, what the <laughs> fuck? And then the Night Stalker <laughs> was Tiger Woods' dad. dad. <laughs> so wait, so wait, but Mark wasn't in the room, and so I was like, <laughs> and I'm like watching this. I'm like, oh my god, it's so wild. And Mark walks back in, and I was like, well, turn it off, turn it off. I don't want to watch any like scary murder stuff. And he's like. What are you <laughs> I'm sorry. I know I'm like crying laughing. I thought that he oh. was a golf pro that had a camper it had and then a took van. the women in there. He took the women in the van. I gotta say, that's fair. I don't I you know what? I don't I don't blame you. It's kind of knowing cre- about either thing. I can see yes, I can see it. I it's creepy see it. in a different way. It's just it's a I cre- mean, it's still creepy in sure. a different way. <laughs> it's still it's creepy. Creepy in a different way. <laughs> also like I don't understand people who like have sex with their exercise people, like their golf pros, tennis pros. Yeah. It's just so confusing to me. Like, how do you make that transition? Yeah, it doesn't seem sexy. Well, it, it doesn't engender the, like sexy feelings for me, I guess, is what I'm saying. It's all the touching, I guess, with those sports. Yeah. Oh, okay. And you're always like, um, like it looks like Lamaze a lot. Like the person's always down at your ankles <laughs> and look, you know, looking they at are? your business before you're fit. Yeah, like really? if they're like holding at your ankles. I've never played golf, so. so not golf. Maybe that's I a don't thing. know. Maybe you do, do you do crunches before golf? I don't know. <laughs> sure. I know I do. Oh, that. <laughs> but if like, but like if a trainer or like golf, you know, you get, be- you get behind them to exact help them with their cup. swing. Exactly. Yeah, I know. It's like standing spooning. Tennis and golf, I think, are the two chief sports where you can get behind somebody and start touching them and having them mimic your movements, like that, doing that, using that as an excuse to right. get on them. And then, of course, you start grinding. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just, and then, of course, you start grinding. See what happens. Um, oh, you guys. How's your podcast? How's the stay F Falcons? How's the F it's it's actually very fun paul's on it you know he has his other podcasts so we've got to keep yes the other podcast that paul is on is every other podcast is every every yeah and so we can't we can't spread our audience i don't want to would you say you're the you are like in so many ways like the uncle of podcasting i don't know where in the family i would be most uh, where it would make the most sense. But I I, I know that somebody once told me... You're a relative, um, for sure. You're I'm, in the immediate... I'm in the family, you're, you're in the family. Yeah, and an older member, I think. I, I think, think that's so fair too. to say. What's the um, guy term for grand dame? Like your great great Il Devo? <laughs> <laughs> Are you the Il Devo? What a- I'm the Il Devo of podcasting, sure. <laughs> um, the Don? But yeah, I, somebody, the Don? Once told me, somebody once told me that they... they I am a good first guest for a podcast because people will um, seek out my name to get into a podcast. Like if they hear of a podcast, they will search my name to see if I've been on it and make that their first episode. Well, we fucked up. No. <laughs> full year full year in. I think you're fine. You're, I think doing, you're doing fine. fine. You didn't need that. You didn't I don't think need you that. You need to worry. <laughs> you had <laughs> I'm not sure about that. <laughs> I mean, listen, we fucked a lot of things up. We might as well just add one thing. We're finally figuring it out. Finally. We're finally figuring it out. You Ironing out the details. We're, we are. 
Nobody knows. Everybody just does what they can. Yeah, and I think it takes a while before, whether you think you have figured it out or not, I think it takes a while for you to feel that way. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Like when you when you finally feel like, oh, I know what our formula is. I know what, you know, this, this doesn't feel like awkward to me anymore, what we do at this part or whatever, but you may already have been there before you felt it. What, what um, do you think that's the secret to life? God damn, yeah. I guess so. <laughs> it's gotta be. Right? Yeah. Shoot. <laughs> Actually, no, I do think that you have not figured it out until you feel like you figured it out as far as life goes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't feel like you're, you're ever in a point in, in, at least speaking personally, I don't think I've ever been at a point in my life where I'm like, I actually was doing okay the whole time. Like it's, it's, it is oh. minute by minute. For I don't sure. know. I don't know. But I think it's different for different people. I think right. figuring it out could be a bad place I to think, be. Yes. I think feeling like, oh, I've got this all. I know what life is. You're fucked. What's the yeah. point of life if it's already... I thought the whole point of life is a constant, the constant figuring out. I or it's a, I thought you were about to say it's yeah. a constant struggle. Well, figuring things out can be a struggle. <gasps> you yeah. know what? Well, I, for some of us. I, yeah. I don't know if if all of life is a constant struggle, but I think that struggles are a part of are a constant part of life. That mm. things as you, you know, as you move through it, it's like you have to worry about different things, and then other things you don't have to fucking worry about anymore. Some things that were like a huge struggle for you at one point. At, at, you get to a point in life where you're like, I can't believe I worried about that. Yeah. I can't believe that was ever a thing that I spent, that I invested so much time and emotion in. Um, and then you're, then you're, you're looking at things like, now this shit right now, this right. is serious and <laughs> I have to be worried about it. Wait, what's right. the thing that you're, that you have let go of being worried about that used to plague both of you? For me- well, Individually, I, I, not together. Yeah, for That's me, true. I will say that I think I am, it took me forever and I think I am finally at the point where I don't really care what other people think of me. And this is, I'm- I, Like I truly. Turn, truly, I don't. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be 53 this month and it took me this long, you know, mm. to say like, I really don't care, you know, like I, I, I think because I like myself more as a person than I ever have before like i have uh, right now i have the least amount of self-loathing <laughs> which is not to say zero wow. on the scale on the scale yeah, uh, yeah. the scale I of self-loathing on a scale of uh absolute self-loathing to a little bit i'm at a little bit <laughs> <laughs> my thing i think Good. that i've um not because i'm not at a place where i don't care because i still get in my head about stuff but for me it's been um i think i'm better with rejection just uh because of acting, you know, and like having to get rejected so much, I've gotten to a place where it still stings, but I get through it much quicker than when I was younger. Yeah. And internalize it less. Right. Yeah. You don't think necessarily that rejection is, you don't take it as deeply personal. Yeah. Now it's more like they made a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's like a thing that I need to implement more. It's hard. recognizing it. Yeah, it's, it's hard. I've been actively working on it for a long time because I feel like, you know, you get rejected so much in acting. And if you're di totally destroyed and disintegrated every single time, you'll never pers persist. You Especially know? when you have to live in L.A., you will literally be driving down the street and see billboards for three things that you didn't get cast Absolutely. in or that well, you didn't get hired on. Not, not me, but yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's just like, guys, it's not even really a Hollywood break. I mean, I don't know. You've probably seen pictures of Los Angeles, but if you've not been to Hollywood and Los Angeles and driven around, like you don't, I think, fully understand that like the entire place is papered. You can't escape it. From, it's an industry yeah, town, period. From the sidewalk yeah. to the clouds of different people's projects, faces, new things that are coming out. Just like, everyone succeeding around you. In, yeah. Los, in Los Angeles, I know that parents actually alter their roots um, when they're when they have their kids in the car because of certain billboards are like, oh, so, we had to do that so because of the American or- Horror Story. <laughs> So they won't drive past a horrifying oh, billboard. Yeah. Oh, their route. Well, because you drive <laughs> past about, like, an American horror story, like tongue yeah. snake going it's into disgusting. someone's ear once, and your six-year-old your is like traumatized. Traumatized. Yeah. And then yeah. you're like, well, we're not taking Sunset for the next three months. Okay. Yeah. 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 There, there was some show. There was some show. I can't remember what the name of the show was, but there was a billboard where- it was a close-up of an eyeball with like a Ugh. little worm crawling out of it. And it's like, yeah. what the sci-fi. fuck you- It was on sci-fi. <laughs> what are yeah. you doing? It was horrible. Horrible. And, horrible. and, and so that was- mad. Also, you know what's bad for uh, parents of young children in Los Angeles the month of October? Because yeah. the haunted hayride. Everything. Billboards, the haunted not, Spar- not Scary Farm, haunted Universal, even like spooky Haunted Erewhon. I mean- <laughs> Erewhon is always haunted. Always haunted. Absolutely. Always haunted Absolutely. by the ghost of how much money you used to have. <laughs> yeah. Before you went in there. One of my favorite things about billboards in Los Angeles is that frequently studios will, I guess at the urging of a manager or an agent, will put a billboard for a project near We've talked the about home. this. You talked about this already? Yeah, because they did it to me for Busy Tonight. <laughs> did they really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they they, I had two. There were two billboards in all of Los Angeles. One was on my mm-hmm. route to my Lek Fit workout, and the other one was on my route to Soul Cycle. It's so fucking fascinating to me how, like, ego drives everything, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. And, like, if you... I don't know. Like, that's the that's the reasoning behind it. They want, like the star to be like, I mean, they are putting money behind my show. (laughs) I've seen billboards everywhere. And then like, if you don't take, like, you don't realize that there's just like two giant billboards. Right. In the world. In the whole world. Repeatedly because you live under it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I've seen this billboard 50 times now. (laughs) I mean. In the last 50 days. (laughs) I was like mad about it. I was like, oh, really? You buy two fucking tiny billboards on my route to my gym. Oh, you know me so well. Right. Like, I mean, it's manipulative, though. It is manipulative. But the whole business is fucking manipulative. That's true. It is. I'm also mad nobody ever did it for me. Yeah, I was going to (laughs) say. When we did Best Week Ever, we made our own posters. We got in trouble for making our own posters to hang up. Best Week, we did get a billboard in Times Square for the launch of the show. And it was like, yeah. Yes, that's true. Yeah, but wait. Yeah, but when, no one cared. Wait, when Paul hosted Best Week Ever solo, remember they put the billboard in Times Square and they used like an they didn't even do a publicity shot of you. Didn't they use like a headshot of yours? <laughs> they used a headshot, yeah. They didn't even yeah, tell yeah. you. They just like no. rent on Google and like copied image and then yeah. and it was like, Well, that, how are you supposed to sell the show that way? It tells you nothing about him as a host or you know yeah. you know what I mean? Look, we could spend a whole episode on what <laughs> VH1 did wrong with Best Week Ever. So, Paul, <laughs> I really am like a James Lipton. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, 
truly that is what the comparison has been made time and time again. Yes. Um, So. (laughs) (laughs) Now that's settled. Yeah, so okay, we enjoy talking the entire sort of thing that we like to discuss our our pivots in in career, in life, in like whatever. But I'm curious if there is a pivot for you, Paul F. Tompkins, that's 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 at right at the top of mm-hmm. the most important slash devastating slash hilarious hilarious pivots first, and then Janie, you think about it. Dealer's and it choice. can be personal too. Mm. Uh, yeah, I've had a few, like when I first started, when I when I first got a manager after I moved out here, um, I was doing stand up and I very much wanted to be in movies. Um, I wanted to have like a Bill Murray type career, and that's what I what I kind of wanted to do. And I was frustrated that that wasn't happening. My manager at the time, her name was Julie James. She was. Uh, a terrific manager who eventually got out of the business to devote her life to uh, altruism. <laughs> um, and I will always feel like I was one of the people that drove her to quit showbiz. <laughs> <laughs> but she was she was the best manager. And at the time, she was like, I think you should be the next David Letterman. And I didn't want to hear that because I didn't want to be myself. I wanted to be an actor wow. and I wanted to do all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And then, like later after she, after she quit, like I was like, and I didn't, I didn't connect it at first, and I was like, I, I want to host things, I want to be a host, TV host, and and you know, when Best Week ever happened, and then um, after that ended, that was my goal was like I set my sights on doing my own show, and I finally got to do a pilot for Comedy Central. Um, the pilot not only didn't go. Wait, but was and, I the you one you guessed that did it, it on it? Yes, yeah, you guessed it. I on did it. the pilot. Yes, you did. You were on that pilot. Yeah, it was in 2013. Um, yeah, and uh, I not only did the show not go, but the head of the network at the time called me as I was about to. I was in Chicago and I was about to do this music video, and we were out on location um, uh, near. Uh, the lake and it was a night shoot. We were going to shoot. We started shooting as soon as it got dark and we were going to go till like, you know, five in the morning or something like that. And I got a call from the head of the network who said, is this a, is this a good time to talk? And I said, actually, I'm about to step on set. And then he just started talking to me and telling me this was before the show didn't was officially didn't go. And he, he told me that the, the, that I, the show wasn't good that I, I did not, um, I made mistakes in, uh, booking guests. There was like one guest that was maybe a mistake, not you busy, but somebody else. Um, it's okay and if it that was me. I don't actually, it was not you. It was not okay. you. And that I came across as, uh, old fashioned and kind of stuffy and that I was not really, um, going to do well with their audience. And I was like, TMI. Okay, well, thank you. <laughs> um, and then it was like a month after that that they said, yeah, we just tested it and it didn't do well and the show's not going to go. So I had to like live with that for a month where he was essentially, he was putting it all on me. Like I was the reason that this thing did not go. And I couldn't understand. This is like a guy that I was friendly with, like before he got this job. And I was like, I couldn't understand why. He was telling me this. Like, what was I supposed to do with that information except dwell on it for years? 
which is super what I did. Interesting. Like, like, holy fuck. Like, yeah. why? I, I it's never, funny. That's never making understood me it. Think of something that you guys are talking about on a previous podcast yes. um, about, about this sort of like wave of people. Uh-huh. Being, I know what you're going to say. Yeah. The, Cause I know people that are like, Oh, I'm a radical truth teller uh. or whatever, you know? And it's like, well, that's not always the kindest avenue of communicating with someone you appreciate. It's also, you're a you radical can, opinion giver. But yes. You know what I mean? Just yeah. because you said it doesn't mean it's the fucking truth. But I wonder if in his in his point of view, if he thought that yes. that yes. truth telling was somehow like a kindness, but it wasn't. Is that make sense? It sure wasn't. I just have because... to be honest, right? <laughs> yeah. Like I just have to be honest with yeah. you. It yeah. was also, it was before the thing was officially dead. I didn't understand why make me, it didn't cushion the blow. I don't think he was doing it maliciously, but I think it was a very misguided thing to do. Also, he, it, some of these people in these positions, they forget what creatives go through. Yeah. And, and so or they never knew. Exactly. And yeah. so they're used to talking about you like you're just this commodity mm-hmm. to other people in the corporation. You yeah. know what I mean? And then when it comes to dealing with the actual talent, they don't understand sort of like the bleeding that you've done. Yeah. I think that's the case with just a lot of people never think of the way what they're saying is. And this is also something we've talked about on the podcast. When you're like, should I say something about the way this made me feel? Should I say something about my side of this? Mm-hmm. Or like if someone says something to you that rubs you the wrong way or hurts your feelings or whatever, and you're like, should I say something back? And I think about it for a really long time. And then I'm like, how long did this motherfucker think about what they were bo- about to say to me? Zero yeah. seconds. Yeah. I know it was zero seconds. Yeah. And like it, the truth is like it's hard when somebody's talking about the persona that you have on camera, that's really you. That's your persona. So it's doubly painful as opposed to like, oh, this part that you were acting wasn't right. It's, you know, we've, we're not going in that direction. But when somebody's saying like, essentially you are not appealing, then yeah. like, what are you supposed to do about that? Yeah. I mean, obviously it, it, it affected you, but did it, were you just like, well, I'm not going to host things anymore? Or did you, take it to heart or did you use it I, as fire I took, or like how did no, it, it it devastated me I took it to heart and I didn't know what to do I didn't know if this is it it cast a shadow over everything that I tried to do after that mm. you know and it sucked because it put me in this place of well I'm never going to get to do anything like that so what do I do and um, it was the beginning of a very long and slow descent into a depression that honestly um, reached its peak during quarantine. Um, And then, uh, you know, because there's so much time to just think and dwell on Mm -hmm. things. And I was like, I don't know what my career is. And, you know, I I was getting, because of BoJack, I was getting uh, BoJack Horseman. I did a voice on BoJack Horseman (laughs) and I was getting more and more voiceover work. And I was like, is this what it is? Is, Am I doing just this now? Like auditioning, not getting anything, not even getting that many auditions. And occasionally somebody would stick me in a thing. And I was like, is this what it is? Is that occasionally somebody who's a fan of mine Mm. from some other thing says, okay, now we're in our seventh season. (laughs) If we want, we can stick this guy in there. Right. Um, 
you know, and, and always a part that was like, well, this part can never come back, you know? And so I couldn't even be like, oh, I can show up on this show every once in a while, you know? Um, and I was really, but it, it all came back to that, com- that phone conversation where I was like, huh. I don't know. I'm, I, I'm just like damaged goods or something or nobody wants me. I don't have anything. I don't, I'm not marketable. I don't have a thing that anyone wants. And honestly, it wasn't until I changed my fucking medication last year that I climbed out of that, that I got out of that. I was lifted out of it. Well, and but I'm also there a, was a lot of self-reflection during the pandemic tons, on top of that. Uh, tons. And but also part of that self-reflection is, well, I can't be living in this place. I can't be but, just right. like this is where it ends. Like I can't just I mean, be sitting in this forever. The way that you're just the way that you described that moment, like the phone call, like it was clearly a trauma. Yeah. The phone yeah. call itself was a trauma. Yeah. Because well, first of all, I'm a big late in life learning what boundaries are mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. didn't ever fucking know but immediately railroaded over your boundary you're like actually i'm about to do something right now <laughs> yes. i'm, about, I'm, yeah, I'm that, literally about that to actually, me is the craziest not, this part great, this isn't a great time yes which then from that point on <laughs> it is it is it is disrespect Down. from that yeah. point on it's mm-hmm. it's fucking done it's yeah. done and can yeah. i say one thing too Almost worse than being disrespectful. I hate the performance of respect that isn't true. So I hate when someone says, hey, I just wanted to um, check if this was okay with you. And you're like, actually, it's not. And then the person like debates you on whether or not it's okay. And then it's like, oh, you thought I was just going to say yes and acquiesce to to this. And you really weren't (laughs) interested. You really weren't interested in whether or not it was okay with me. You just wanted to give the performance of respecting me. And that's almost worse than just disrespecting me to begin with. Like if you ask somebody for space and they're like, "Mm, two days is enough. And then they start like texting you or something. And it's like, that's not, that's not how this works. It's like, you don't decide. This is not your situation at all, Paul, but a lot of misogyny is that. Yeah. Sure. Uh, I mean, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. It's the same kind of exchange in a way. It's like the person thinks they're more important important than your space. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or something. Yeah. Okay. So, Paul, I want to go back to – because this is – I'm like – wow. I'm so grateful to hear that you are, like, on the other side of that because I um, – and I'm sorry that I ruined your pilot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you classed it up. I'm really teasing. Uh, no, because I – Oh, remember being at the taping for the pilot and Mark and I watching you before I went out or whatever and just being like, this is it. Like this, this is what you were like born to do. This is like, it was so clear. It was so fucking funny and so clear to us. Like what a huge talent and star you were and like how that was what you should be doing. That was, and it was so clear to me just in knowing you that that was like your dream and everything. To hear that, like, one person's thought has been in your brain for so many years, mm. like, really, really breaks my heart. And, like, um, and I fucking get it. I get it so deeply. Like, I obviously get it, <laughs> you know? But it wasn't just the medication, to be fair. Like, you had to, like, do work. You know what I mean? Like, I oh, want yeah. you to give yourself as much yeah, credit yeah, yeah. as you can. But I have often thought, and Mark and I have talked about that pilot, 
Mm. And like, I've often thought like, why doesn't Paul do another? Why didn't he try to do another late night talk show somewhere? Why didn't he try to do? And listen, our paths are our paths. And like, I'm like grateful for the work that you do and like all of the stuff. But I, I hate the thought that one person like so deeply affected your dream. Well, thank you for saying that. And, you know, what I have to do is look at it as, and what what I've come to look at it as, is that there are many dreams. And, you know, what, what happened after quarantine was I started to realize, like, I want to do what I want to do. And that's why I started, uh, you know, re-fired up my variety show again and saying, I just want to do a thing that is just for me. If I can make some money from it, great. There's no, there's no other purpose for this. This I'm doing this just to do it because it would be fun for me to do. As far as work goes, I'll take what comes along. If I get auditions, I'll audition. If I get hired for this or that, I'll do that. If I get voiceover work, I'll do that. I mean, I have a very nice life and I... I'm okay with not being uh, some kind of household name or something, or, you know, I'm okay with people not knowing where to find my shit. You know what I mean? If I have to say it's on this weird platform that's new or whatever, like whatever that is, like I I think about (laughs) there's this show. I won't name it. I'll text you later what show it is, but it's been (laughs) on. It's been on for years. I've never seen it. I've never heard anybody talk about it. It is on this platform that I've never visited. If I got on a show like that, that no one one ever saw, but somehow it kept staying on, I'd be fine. You know what I mean? Like if I was having a good time, that's, that's really, I've really come to look at, at priorities as being the things that are necessary as opposed to the things that I desire and realizing that Mm. I still get to have a really good life doing fun things, you know, like it's, it's good, you know, like my, my, my priorities have become less egocentric. Mm -hmm. Um, and and uh, part of that really is age, you know, it's like getting older and realizing like there's part of it that's like, you know, well, if I, if the time to kind of, you know, focus on things and be better and, and, and about understanding how the business works and all that was when I was younger. And unfortunately I was not in a great space when I was younger. It was pre-therapy. It was, you know, there was so many things that I didn't realize were wrong that were wrong. And if I had been able to, I either had to be in a sort of emotional place where I am now, or I had to be a sociopath. And since I was neither of those things at the time, that's how it worked, you know? Right. Right. And, um, so I'm okay with, I'm okay with where I am. I'm okay with where I am. And you and I have had a lot of conversations about this. I think, do we want to do this? Casey has been there for me so many times. Like when I have been struggling with these issues and I, I cannot, I cannot under, I cannot overestimate um, how much that has meant to me over the years. Well, I just, I love you so much. And I do not say this lightly. I've worked for, 
I've worked for icons. I just have. Like, I feel weird saying that, but it's true. I've worked it's for. Absolutely true. And true. <laughs> there's no way and, around it. <laughs> and so, you know, so I've I've sat down and rolled my eyes uh, at, at the most famous, most talented, <laughs> beloved people um, uh, that have performed on the planet. And you are the most talented comedian I've ever yeah. had the the privilege to work with um to the point where like again when we when we first met it was working on this show and I was like I don't know if I can write for him like I don't know if I can do it because I'm nervous you know like not realizing because I didn't know you and I didn't realize like how collaborative you would be and how how great it was to have you say oh yeah and like let's take this and add to this and how much fun it would be to work for you I was I was nervous because you are just so wildly talented and every comedian that everybody looks up to now you're they always are like excited to know that I know you you know what I mean like you're that's very sweet it's one hundred percent true. Your name comes up every time, and it's just so we. I feel like you and I have had a lot of conversations. Like, well, okay, so for whatever reason, like, what are we going to cry about not being Dane Cook? Like, you know what I mean? Like, because we're not. Then right. you see, like, you see who who did get a late night show, and you can see now that perspective of like, oh yeah, I'm. This makes sense. I'm not that. Yeah. Okay, but just real quick. Sidebar, would you have given John Mulaney 19 minutes to talk about his year? I would just like to say, for the record, Paul, if you decide to blow up our marriage, can we do it a little differently than that? Yeah, let's plan Let's plan it out. Well, you guys, I'm going to... I'm going to be honest, like, the a lot of the stuff from my book about Mark was, like, sort of extrapolated in the press has been really hurtful for him and in, in a lot of ways. And it was, mm-hmm. it's been a thing that like, that sucks. I had to, but I also ha- have to own that because I, you know, said th- those things and people really wanted to talk about the marriage stuff. And yeah. like, it's so hard to Monday morning quarterback too. Like, how are you supposed to like future trip on, on the on the one thing that is going to be get get distorted and like scrutin- get picked up by the scrutin- press, scrutin- they scrutinized. On. Yeah. Like scrutinized. when Al Roker wrote in his book about sharding at the White House, that's all anyone wanted to talk about. <laughs> Al Roker would be like, "Enough! Can we can we stop talking about how I sharded at the White House?" And then everyone was like, "Al Roker, you put it in your book." <laughs> And he should have named well, it. Sh- I sharded at the White House. Well, the thing is, Mark never really had Mark read the all of the versions of the book and whatever. And he never had an issue with what I wrote. The problem becomes that you Google his name and it's like busy Phillips. I wanted to leave my deadbeat husband right. or whatever it was like not or whatever. They like, it's make upsetting. These, like terrible. Right. They make these headlines. They're like, upsetting. yeah, yeah. Not exactly accurate. It's taken out mm-hmm. of context, which is something Joan Rivers talked about. It's true. She did. Yes. Anyway. Anyway, what we should get to is we heard Paul's pivot that he had like this. I mean, what do you just sum it up, Paul? (laughs) Like you had this pivot and you're in a better place. What's the log line of your pivot? What's the elevator? We're selling this. The elevator. Thank you. Jesus. (laughs) Um, uh, life goes on, I guess, you know, it's like, it's very easy to get hung up on, on one thing several times, you know, it could be several things that you get hung up on in a row. Um, 
but that life goes on and there's a there's there's more than one way to skin a cat, I guess. I don't fucking know. <laughs> That's one of my favorite sayings that my mom used to say, and it's so disgusting. Why it's would you skin a cat at all? Why, yeah, who's doing this? Who's skinning these cats? I say that all the time. That it's said, southern, I would love. Southern? I would love a cat skin blazer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now you um, know someone's really gonna create that for you. That's the danger. That is yeah, the amount of power and fame that you have. Someone's gonna sew you up a cat skin yeah, blazer, guys. Don't do, don't, don't do it. Don't do it. Calico, please. And then you have to go on Seth Meyers, and he'll let you talk for nineteen <laughs> minutes <laughs> about how. How you re- how de- Heather are ca- cat carcasses left on our <laughs> porch? <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. Listen, so Janie had ad Tompkins. Yes, ma'am. Tell me, tell us, tell us all. I'm in. Uh, I'm in the middle of a pivot. <gasps> I have this perimenopausal rage as my engine right now, and it oh. is fueling me. Like I wow. have it, it is like chugging away and it is pushing me into this other space mm-hmm. that I didn't feel it, a healthy entitlement to claim before. And now I'm like, you know, ready to rumble. But yeah. <laughs> I feel it. It sounds like you and Paul are kind of in a similar in a similar place. It's Paul said that he's in a place where he no longer cares what people think about him for the first time. You're being fueled by perimenopausal rage. My personal pivot and busy, this is something you just casually mentioned earlier that I want to talk about is finding boundaries later in life because I did not grow up understanding. I never even understood what the definition of boundaries were until just recently. Like people who are like, oh, you need to say no to that and have boundaries. I just thought boundaries were saying no. And that's right. so not even close to what boundaries are. Because boundaries. Jeannie, same. Yeah. Same. Like, oh, oh, like boundaries are also like with your own being, like where you start and begin, like where you're not being like sucked into somebody's force field kind of a thing. Because I've always been kind of spongy in that way, um, mm-hmm. which is helpful with yeah. acting, yeah, you know, but not helpful with life. Yeah, because you're absorbing. I feel like I absorb people's anger a lot. And like, mm-hmm. so my boundary recently, and especially in the pandemic, is being like, I understand that you're not feeling great, uh-huh. but like, mm-hmm. I'm not a garbage can where you just dump your poor feelings and then go off into the world like feeling better unburdened of all that shit and here I am holding it like I that's and so I feel like that's what you're describing a little bit and so much of it was how I was raised like in the south I was the only girl in my family too and just this whole like societal kind of expectation on me to make everything better for everyone else mm-hmm. constantly. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And and even and while that's a an admirable skill to have and I know I can access it at any moment, it doesn't have to be my 24/7 ethos to yeah. the point where I'm like, you know, who am I? <laughs> 
That like, almost made, I'm, I almost feel like I want to cry hearing you say that because, because I'm just picturing you taking on the shit of other people that, you know, in an effort to make things better when I know, because I know you, that the way that you actually make things better is by being your outward self, who you are, like you're, yeah. <laughs> you're the sunshine, you know, you're the person that I want to hear from. I don't want to hear other, I don't want to see you getting other people's shit stuffed into you. I've you know been what I mean? in a situation where I've had like close friends where I'm like, I'm having a hard time right now. And, uh, and like a close friend, I'll be like, you can't be, you can't be having a hard time. Like you're not like, like you're not allowed or something. Yeah, I'm the hard time person. I'm the hard time person. <laughs> and it, and I, you are the person who listens to the hard time. And so I've had Oof. to like kind of reassess those types of friendships in my life just because like I can't no no human can live that way, you know? Right. And so yeah, I mean I do have an optimism and a sunniness, but I also work at it, especially in the times we're living in. Like yeah. there are times I want to be like, what <laughs> it's gonna burn down to the ground. <laughs> it's all gonna yeah. burn down to the ground. <laughs> you know? So but like, you know, you have to kind of like that that's a boundary too, right? Yeah. Of being like, mm-hmm. okay. What can I control in this smaller space that I'm yeah. occupying, you know? So yeah. So that, those are my pivots. And some of it was the pandemic, too. Like, even though this is, like, stuff I've been working on in therapy pre-pandemic, the pandemic kind of, like, hammered it home. I don't know. I just, like, had, like, time to really be like, what the fuck? I don't want to— live the rest of my life like this. I want to, and I have things to say, you know, I have things to say and I want to funnel it and put it out there and not just defer to other people's stuff, you know? Yeah. That's what I want from you too. That's what I want from you too. (laughs) And from you, Paul, and from you, Casey, and from me, Busy Phillips. (laughs) I want for all of us because we're all creative, sensitive people, and and it is true. Okay, Marvin Gaye. <laughs> um, but wait, I had something else to say before we went away. I think it was about how much I love you guys, and I really miss you. I miss. We you. miss you too. Mm, yeah, I love you too. I was excited to do the podcast just so, uh, like, it was like we were just like FaceTiming. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Why not? Well, I mean, it wasn't like, honestly. It's been a nice catch up. It's more sure. of a visit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It really was. But also, you told us a lot of interesting things. You gave everyone a lot of food for thought. Thank you for being on our podcast. Um, and thank you, though, for always being friends to each of us individually, also together. Also yeah. Together. Also, yeah. everyone is friends. I know. We I love, love you. you both so much. I love you, Busy. I love you, Casey. Thank you for being our friends. Thanks for having us. <laughs> yes. This was you both delightful. Look, I just want to say, I know we're not supposed to talk about the way people look. You both look fucking great. Very good. Whoa. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I accept it. <laughs> yeah. That's right. I'm using the, the filter on Zoom, but that's okay. <laughs> I touched up my appearance, but whatever. <laughs> All right, love you. Thank you. Love you. Love you. Talk talk soon. Uh, Well, guys, Jeff Richmond, Tina Fey, thank you so much for joining Casey 
and me, Busy Phillips. Um, like we all know each other, obviously, because we work together. We've all worked together. Yes. Yes. Wait, Casey, yeah. are you saying that you met? I mean, did you meet Jeff ever during Busy Tonight? No, you just we just only spoke on the phone, but we co-wrote the Good Night song yes. from Busy Tonight together. So it's so nice to see his face. It's one of my my favorite collaborative <laughs> moments. <laughs> I like was it. coastal. And, uh, and, and, uh, for busy. I still get, you guys, I still get requests on DM. I got one today, actually, that said, will you sing the goodnight song at some point? Well, well, how did it go? Will you, will you sing it right now? I don't know if I can remember it. Jeff, Jeff just listened to it. I just listened to it. So good. Da, 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 da. And it started out with a tequila line, but I. There's um, no more tequila. Wait, your mark's no been down. Wait, there's your no mark's more been tequila. down. Cut, babe, I babe, totally, I totally feel, ya. feel ya. Put on Mr. Nightgown. Someone was a great guest. Mm-hmm. Something else is. This is Put like a line here. that we would yeah, write. We would every always time. write. Right, right, right. right. Na, 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 na. Something away your fears. A funny joke. A funny joke. Right. right. And then, good night. Right. Love busy tonight. Is that right? Yeah. There That's you right. Go. That was it. That's it. And that, that funny joke would always be written in a panic, it, like in the remaining two minutes before the show because we would always forget yep. to write it and um, <laughs> it would be hastily put into the teleprompter. Like, Sometimes Busy wouldn't even know what the joke would be before right. she sat in the swing to sing it. That's right. And uh, yeah, that's that's how that was done. Little peek behind the, behind the curtain. You would forget to write it. That's cool. That whole operation. <laughs> well, because forget they would write to write the see joke. what happened in the show, you know, and then write <laughs> right, yes. right. Oh, um, sure. Right. Like the last minute. Right. Well, sometimes also, though, guys, we would forget that we needed to come <laughs> to come up with a couplet for the song. Well, that whole operation was so wonderfully tiny and like just felt like 1951 television meets yeah, and- 2050 sensibility. You know, like it was, it was the past yeah. and the future all that, at once. That cool I mean, kind of local TV kind of. Yes, with, where the weatherman we also for. plays the uh, you know plays the clown in the cartoons show on Saturday. That's what I always <laughs> felt your show is like. <laughs> and well, then we it, were so lucky. We were really lucky just to have to, to work with Tina, to work with you, Jeff. It was re- it was really lucky. It was nice. It was nice. It was just nice and weird. It was nice. <clears throat> it's a good year. It was it was nice. I look back fondly on that time. You guys, I want to ask you, we're so lucky to have you. You know, we talk about pivots on the show. I want to ask you about, uh, if you don't mind, about your relationship and your and then your working relationship together. Because one thing, you're just, you're very much a power couple. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I, I'll take it. I want to start at the beginning. How did you guys meet? We met at the Improv Olympic. Right, Jeff? Oh. We met at the Improv Olympic in Chicago in uh, 19... Should I give a year? It was a long yeah. time ago. It was 1994. I would like to say it was the heyday of long-form improv comedy in Chicago. And uh, I was the piano player at the Improv Olympic, which meant I was the only 
I was the only person that got paid other than Yeah, Charlie. that's true. <laughs> and <laughs> I must have looked like a cool daddy-o, huh? Right? Because I had drag <laughs> yeah. on my key, keyboards every night. Hearing your keyboards through the ice and snow. It was very smart of one. me because in my experience, everyone always falls in love with the improv keyboard player. That's true, right? Yeah, it's, he, and he it's always, been my experience. He's, yeah. Yeah. he's yeah. swimming in it, guys. The, <laughs> yeah. um, Jeff has this crazy skill that only a handful of people in the world have, which is the ability to score improv. And it is, it is like it's such an example of like, a, per, a person who's like a great listener, a great communicator, really intuitive. Um, you can imagine what else that all bodes well for. Um, but like, yeah, the ability to like lead a scene and like help beginners kind of like find their way or like play something on the piano that makes them bring back an idea that they hadn't thought to bring back. Um, so there's only like five people in the world that can do that. And he's one of them. Oh, that's, that's really nice. That is such a cool and specific talent. And I was just, just as you were talking about it, I was thinking about uh, watching improv, long form improv in Los Angeles back in the day. And, and yeah, like the musical, uh, you know, director, a person doing it. And I, I guess I have never seen one of the six people, Jeff included, who can, but like, you know, you'd also have to have a really good sense of timing, I imagine. And you have to like know where the jokes live because you're going to bring them, you know, you can bring them back musically. Yeah. Did you, did you perform, did you, were you always a funny person, Jeff? Pivot. Um, I... I thought I was going to be a performer, and that was my first pivot, is that uh, uh, I always said, oh, I'm going to be an actor, and I was um, fairly good at it, and then then uh, suddenly I decided I didn't want to do that anymore because, uh, for whatever reasons, maybe it was anxieties, I didn't want to be on stage like that anymore, but uh, I, uh, I, you know, turned to music and writing music. Uh, but the thing about... Uh, about improv is very interesting. You're just kind of listening and you have to kind of know the rules of improv and be another player up there. You kind of have to, it's not just shooting from the hip. I'm um, texting uh, you both a picture of Jeff uh, as a child actor in like Virginia Beach playing like or no, maybe that was community theater, but it's like playing no, an old man. That was dinner theater. That, that was so funny. Wait, you know what? This oh is amazing. God. You guys, this is an amazing picture. We may have to ask Jeff's permission to put it on our Instagram when we air this because it is amazing. But also you can really see your daughters yeah, in great. you yeah. in this. Because I always think your kids look so much like Tina. And then you see this picture and I guess, Wow. They really do favor you, you a bit. If you put a beard on any one of our kids, they would look <laughs> like me. And then well, if the beard gets too long, they look like Tina. As a joke. <laughs> See? I don't know where I was But that's going. the same with me. That's the same with us. Like, if our children with a beard look exactly like Mark, but then sometimes they really shapeshift and they look exactly like me. Oh, my God, Jeff, look at you. So this is wow. cute really and amazing. funny. Is- Holy moly. Um, so you guys met. Tina played it cool. Yeah. I was trying to be cool about it. I remember that's the first thing I said to you, because at the time, Jeff had like very short cropped hair. And I was like, do people ever tell you you look like Anthony Hopkins? And he was like, yes. Because he does. He's kind of like a young Anthony Hopkins. Um, yeah, all the time. And the, I, we didn't really just go on a date. I think the way that you opened that door was you were like, because Jeff's day job was working at a children's theater company. 
called Child's Play where they would tour and they would like write. They, it was a great thing actually where they go to schools, teach kids about story. Then the kids write stories and they take the stories away and they come back with a produced play of the kid's story. It was like this awesome thing. This oh. is still going on. Anyway, he was like, I'm writing these children's plays and I, I'm looking for someone to like help me out. And it was like, of course, the, the way to my, my love language being work and acts of service. Like that was. <laughs> I, I don't know if I ever told you this story, Tina, but I'm going to spill it now. Oh, no. On, on Busy's show. Oh, no. <laughs> Maybe I did tell you, but that was in, that was like in 1994 when you could actually, you could call in for like um, uh, hotlines for like, uh, what do you call them? That, uh, like psychic you know hotline. Yeah. Mind re- What do you call Psychic. Oh, like a psychic Psychics. hotline? Thank God, yes, yeah. Yes, I do know this. And this, uh, and this person I was talking to, and I was kind because of, I was at a kind of a crossing point in my life then, too. Pivot. And uh, <laughs> and the they said, you were, gonna cut, you were going to find a T. The letter T keeps coming up. And uh, little, and there you are. I think that, I really think that was you. And I think that psychic deserved the <laughs> The $20 that you end up paying. <laughs> a minute I paid for her. <laughs> Miss Cleo? Was it Miss Cleo? It was it was a Miss Cleo knockoff. Wow. Was it like a three one two number? Was it just a, a, another dwelling in Chicago? We'll never know. We'll never know. But here we are. Here we are. Now. So so you guys like obviously fell in love and then did SNL happen together? No. no. So so we started going out and then and it was so funny because again, all the Chicago improv world ethics, like it there's there's nothing more high stakes in the world than Chicago improv when you're in it. And I remember at first I was like, I can't really, I can't keep this a secret from my team. Like I can't let the rest of inside (laughs) Vladimir find out that we're dating. And then like that cat got out of the bag. And then Jeff got hired at Second City to play piano in the one theater there. And I was working my way up through the touring company. And um, uh, I remember by the time I was on the main stage, it got, I had been there for a little while. I had tried, you know, I had been, like scouted our show had been scouted by SNL there was no interest in me as a performer and then Jeff got picked he was going to direct the next show in the main stage and I was like well obviously this is a conflict of interest because again such Chicago ethics so I was like I better leave the company it'll be just like I can't <laughs> I better, be like it's I better be fair go to, to SNL people. you'll be picking my ideas so mm-hmm. I, that was what prompted me to go ahead and push and try to get a job, a writing job from Adam McKay. And so I spent like that summer working on my packet of sketches and sent them to Adam. And Adam, who, you know, knew me a little bit from Chicago, was like, great, flew me out. I, I ended up getting the job. So then I left Chicago. I was flying back and forth. <laughs> Wait, I love that you're like, my this guy that I'm in love, I assume you're like in love with him at this yeah, point. You guys sure. are dating. You've been together a while. And you're like, this guy that I'm in love with, he, he's going to direct main stage. I can't be in that show. So I obviously get a job in New York. Yeah. And just leave. <laughs> I got to leave. I got to go. Yeah, I got to go. <laughs> On a big TV show. <laughs> On a big TV show. That's what. I mean, yeah, if I had not gotten a job, what, what would I have done? I don't know. Probably stay. And then oh. so then like a bunch of time went by. And then so, yeah. And then there was like Cheryl Hardwick retired as the musical director. But then. At SNL. At SNL. But then somebody else, and you had moved there by then, but they, I think somebody else had the job before you. Which, by the way, when a big job comes open like that, always better to be the second one to come into that job. Be number Correct. two. That's our, don't be number one when you're trying to fill big shoes. 
Yeah, which worked out. But I will remember this. So you were in you were in New York. I was still in Chicago, kind of going back and forth, and we were long distancing, and that's why we didn't decide to solidify our 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 marriage yeah. of sorts until we were in the same city for an extended amount of time. But I remember when I was in, this is kind of a pivot too. When I was, <laughs> I finally came to New York and wasn't working in Chicago anymore. I would still get, I wanted to be in show business. So I would still get jobs at Conan's show at Conan O'Brien. Because if you knew somebody there, like we knew a lot of writers and whatnot, you could get those weird little uh, comedy bits. You'd come in, show up and be, I like, I'd show up, you know, with a diaper on. Just, like wearing a diaper arrow, with Jack Angel, like, just would, like Cupid. Pull out a little, you know, gun that went bang. I don't know. You do these ridiculous bits <laughs> like a for bar, scale. Quartet, right? And, and I think it was in? Robert Carlock that said that my life was like a, a O. Henry novel <laughs> because I wanted to have my own money, but I had to just had disgrace, disgrace myself to get your own money. Business to do it. That's hilarious. That I was getting checks from entertainment partners. Yeah. <laughs> in very inside. Very inside. I don't know. That's that's how we were in New York. Also, the, when you finally like really left Chicago was you had just opened. We got married in like June of 2001 and you went back and you were directing another show. The show was a couple days away from opening when September 11th happened and you were like, I got to go right. be with my wife. And he got a rental car and drove like let them the show open without him and just kind of came and sat on the Upper West Side. It's much like the girls five ever story because I on that show I was directing was supposed to open September 12th 2001 not a a great time to open a comedy show I'm gonna say not that not that year no 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 not not in that moment no um so you came to New York the job opened up at SNL and then you guys get to work together again but Tina did not have to recuse herself no, yeah, there was no anymore. conflict not of interest. Time. Not that because time. Because it wasn't Chicago. It wasn't Chicago. It was New York were, rules now, yeah, baby. New York rules. No ethics in New York. And, and we didn't, it wasn't uh, like, our paths didn't cross in any way that would have been a problem, you know? Right. And so Jeff, like at SNL, was that when you started, like what kind of musical, like composing would you do for the show? Like if if they were doing like, um, you know, that, thing that I loved. What was that thing that I loved where it was like the techno songs? Deep House Dish. Deep, Deep House, House Dish. Dish. Right. Like, would you write those yeah. songs with the writers or yeah. would you write them? How would it work? No, you, you would write them with the writers because the, uh, you know, when you were the guy that was one of the musical directors or as I was, creator of special material, special music, they would just bring you, you would be there on Tuesday nights with everybody else and they would bring you these scripts and they'd come in, they'd come in I, have a, I need a song, it's supposed to sound something like this, here's the words, and you'd have to sit here and kind of like re-engineer these words that wouldn't scan into songs and make them fit. And you'd have like about 20 or 40 or 100 of these before the read-through, which happened on Wednesday. So you'd be there all night, as all the writers were, and then you would have to teach the host before read-through started the next day, which was usually about 1.30 or 2 in the afternoon. And they would bring they would bring in whoever, what, Tom Hanks or whatever, you know. Catherine Just no Zeta big deal. Jones. No big deal. And they would have to stand there and pretend that they're learning a song that they have to sing in front of Lauren in the whole room within the next 30 minutes. And so you... And then you'd have to play the read through all the music, but you were writing basically you were writing all the jingles and the songs and the little musical numbers and uh, music for the monologues, which they used to do. A, they used to do a lot. They used so to- 
many musical numbers in the monologues. Oh yeah, my God! Your favorite monologue song was the one, the King Kong one you wrote with Jack Black. That was because Jack oh, Black's so good at singing. Yeah, that was a great. Sh- that was a great show that that night. That was a. I just remember that being a particularly because first of all, Jack Black is the most game guy with talent that you can can ever imagine. He's so so much fun. Jeff, and, uh, I was living a weird parallel life down the hall at the Rosie O'Donnell show, which oh! was very song parody heavy. So That's I was right. in the morning writing song parodies, teaching Martin Short or Billy Baldwin whatever song he was going to sing with Rosie. And our executive producer would always be like, why are you hugging Billy Baldwin in the hallway? And I'd be like, because he was nervous to sing a song and we got through it. But I was, <laughs> I remember I snuck into the rehearsal to see Jack Black rehearsing his song because I loved him so much. Oh, wow. That's, <laughs> that is so weird in the small world. We lived up, we worked on the same floor, lived. Sure. Why not? And Casey, Seemed was that, that with Seth Rudetsky? Yeah. Seth Rudetsky was there, but I went with Judy Gold. She snuck me in to see, because she was friends with Jack Black, so she brought me down to see Jack Black rehearse because I loved him so much. Yeah. That's really funny, too. I just, talking about those monologues, it would be Lauren's thing. Well, Tina can jump in here, and you you, you worked there, too, but they were... <laughs> You never knew what was going to happen with the monologue until like Friday night and you'd suddenly you'd be writing a song that would be the next, have to come up the next day and you'd have to get the band and chart a whole thing and you were going to rehearse it at 11 o'clock in the morning on Saturday so it could air 12 hours later. It was, it was crazy. Do you feel like that job, that experience prepared you for Mean Girls or do you feel like Mean Girls was always in you? You always wanted to write a musical. I wanted to, I want to ask about that. Cause after, cause you guys, we can, we can fast forward to you guys. And then you left SNL and then you started a production company together and you had children. <laughs> and well, yeah, right? I say Jeff wrote, he had written musicals before he had written musicals in Chicago uh, from college on in at Kent state. He had written, he had written in that form before. Like what kind of musicals? Well, um, the, I such a pause. <laughs> I wrote a bunch. I've read, I wrote a bunch of musicals. Okay, so musicals were always your you loved it. It's so funny. Pivot. Yeah, I always assumed that I would be really you know, you acting shows or whatever. I, I don't know if we're talking about me so much. Well, it oh, is God. interesting and also and also Jeff, I do want to say as someone who's the more public facing of the two people uh-huh. who work in the same business, it right. is rare that the one who's not the more public-facing one gets asked a ton of questions. It's very true. So I've been, as you can, I'm I'm ready. You are ready, <laughs> and I'm sensitive to it, and I'm Thank sensitive you very much. to it clearly because you've had to live but, with so, it as but well. But I do also think it's really interesting because I know, like, look, this past week has been so fun with Girls Five Eva coming out and people having the reaction that they've had to it, and the thing that obviously is such a huge, huge, huge part of it is our music and the music that you put together for both. The flashbacks and like the boy songs and and New York Lonely Boy, which I think is, uh, I told you, I think it's a real banger. I think genius. it's a hit. Yeah, people like that one. It's funny. I I, I was just I was going to say that all that everything we did for Girls Five Eva, 
is just, was all just Second City was all, that was the training ground for that. Second, or Second City and, S, and Saturday Night Live and all those places where you'd have to like uh, write something quickly and be able to produce something quickly that sounded like something. Oh. So that was my, I feel like Girls Five Ever, its lineage is all television. It's all that world. It's all creative music for this medium. And I think Broadway is such a different such a different thing. Somebody asked me, and I think asked both of us, you know, what is the difference between writing for this? And there's just so much more time to th- overthink and think about things on Broadway. <laughs> that you have none of that time on when you're writing for TV whatsoever, you know. And I don't know that it's, I don't know that it gives you better results. I think sometimes, <laughs> I think like, oh. Yeah. You don't? I really don't. I think like you can overthink something that can craft, you could craft something to death until it lost all its, until it lost anything that made it shiny. Yeah. I mean, I don't, th- I mean, I, we, you know, we're huge Mean Girls fans in my home. Yeah, I know. You guys, Busy, you were the first, I think the first celebrity who, who saw it? No, I'm I think I, well, Is that true? I went to the dress rehearsal. I went to the last dress. I was in town for that. So Mean Girls, and you're doing Kimmy Schmidt. You did the music for Kimmy, too, which is like great music in Kimmy. There's a lot of great music in Kimmy, 30 too. Rock. 30 Rock. 30 Rock. Jeff scored, all, all, yeah, scored 30 all. Rock. There's actually a, a 30 Rock album of the score that the late, great Scoring producer songs. Hal Wilner um, produced because he Aww. wanted to do that. With Jeff, and that had some good small. Like there were a lot of, you know, Jane Krakowski sang a lot of very short, funny songs on Thirty Rock. Oh, that's right. I guess I like kind of forgot about that. Yeah, Tennis Night in America, the Mystic Pizza Musical, which is now really happening. What is a joke on Thirty Rock? And now there really is a Mystic Pizza Musical. Mystic Pizza Musical. What we had. We had just made a joke about it, and she had to sing a song from the Mystic uh, Jenna Maroney did. And then we found out last year, oh, oh, they're doing it. And <laughs> well, it was a- wait, because didn't you make a lot of jokes on 30 Rock that were that are now real? Yeah. Tina, jump in. There's some good ones. You did. But are there any that are... <laughs> Can't we, we can't talk about that feels yeah usually it's not it's not if it ha- if it came true it wasn't great news I know there are but there are a ton of them they're so it's like the thing about the way that you work Tina and I feel like Jeff it holds true with the music that you do too is that it is like there's a joke on a joke on a joke like that just keeps building and building and building where even when I'm watching a show that I am in. I'm like, oh my God, I never, like, I didn't get that until just now. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, and I wonder if you if you guys feel like your comedic sensibilities have informed one another. Uh, yeah, I think it definitely, with, between me and Jeff, and then also between me and Jeff and Robert, um, it has all influenced each other. You know, I, I, my tendency you know, at its worst is to, is to be like a little bit pokey on, or perhaps one might say strident on mm. issues or topics or thick issues, issues or topics, and then trying to coat that in jokes. But I think like, you know, Robert brings that absurdity, which then once that's happened, like I remember, um, I just remember a vivid moment in the 30 Rock Writers Room where just this weird joke with Chris Parnell. It's like end of season one, Alec has had a heart attack and Liz finds out that she was actually in his phone as his emergency contact. So she shows up at the hospital and his mother is there and, and Emily Mortimer's his fiance, who he doesn't really like. And um, 
And then Chris Parnell shows up. He's Dr. Spichemin. This is also absurd. And he, but he had some joke where it was like, he shows up and he's covered in blood. And we're all like, oh, no. And he's like, oh, don't worry. No, I was, I was at a Halloween costume party. And in the room, Robert's like, don't worry. I was at a Halloween costume party. And then I said, like, in the room. So, like, and the hostess's dog attacked me. And then he said, <laughs> so I had to stab it. Like, it was just like a like, – <laughs> that's, like, the fi- final joke. And it was just, like – it was just that, you know, bringing out the worst in each other. And I think Jeff yeah. is, you know, absolutely a part of that development of that sensibility. And now it's so much – now it's just trying to – but I feel like my job is just always trying to keep a lid on it. I'm always saying, like, guys, if you have a joke here and a joke here, I'm holding up my fingers one inch apart. You don't need to put a joke here. Like, it because beca- it just becomes, like, so I am I feel like my job is become joke removal. Joke police. Joke removal. Joke removal. <laughs> joke management specialist. Joke management. That's it. That's it, Casey. Joke management. Very true. Very true. You're good well, I at get it, that. Too. I get that. And I think that Tina, I admire that because I feel like that has become my role too, as like I've matured and it's a thankless role. I feel like it is a, it's, it is a, it's like a fun killer role, but I think because there's off. never any proof that you were correct. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes. The, the only proof is if everybody goes against you and does it anyway, and it turns out bad, you can say, I told you guys. And that's not a fun proof. But then right. you convince them to do it, you know. But I do think, like, with Girls 5 Ever, because Meredith has a real, she is a joke machine. And there were definitely times yes. where I was like, let it breathe. Or, like, don't don't bend it. You know, bend it, don't break it. Like, And I, I hope that she feels good about the times that I sat on that. Because I do think it just, with episodic, it just gives you a minute to care about people. It lets you retain some boundaries on the universe. Not many. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, that's one thing I've just consistently heard in the last week from people who've watched and loved the show is that they feel like that it is so funny. The music is so fucking great. And then also that it has so much heart and it like is you really care about the characters and you can't believe like I had a friend, like a good friend who was like, I couldn't believe that I was like misty about yeah. the whole thing at the, <laughs> yeah. like I was so rooting for them and I didn't even know it. Um, cynical TV asshole friend. You know what I mean? I think that's twofold. I think that's the actors being warm and caring about each other and taking their stakes seriously. And then I think it's the score. Like, I think those two things can really combine to come get you, you know, like when the actors are playing everything real, like when you, when you discover it, it, Andrew's crab attack and you play it so real and then that moment is is heavy <laughs> so Busy, real that, I was scoring that scene I didn't I wasn't going to because it was so good I'm not even I, 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 I gotta you're such a good actor and I, and it so comes nice. through no I'm serious I, 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 I mean of course I'm serious I wouldn't, I wouldn't lie about it but that particular <laughs> scene I had watched it over and over and I was saying this is heartbreaking this is nobody is so has real. seen it more times than Jeff nobody has seen any scene in this more times than me that's true because when you score it you're just okay but I just love I loved putting the, just enough music in that scene to wrench a heart just a little bit more. I love I love it. So let me ask you guys this, because you run, you run, you with Robert Carlock, you're part, you know, you're, you're 
partner. You guys all run your production company together. And I'm sure people bring you stuff all the time, writers from the staffs of your shows. I'm sure that, Tina, don't make that face. Like, you're like, I'm in. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> but, but how do you decide, like, who, like, what ideas, who you want to work with and what feels to you like it's something you can get behind? Um, yeah, I, I usually think, uh, one, is this a show I would want to watch? Uh-huh. Um, which for sure, Girls Who Have is, is does it feel, does this idea, this pitch, does it feel fertile? Does it feel juicy? Like, oh, I can see this many episodes of this. Um, you know, does it feel necessary? You know, is there anything resonating through it that makes it feel valuable to people either to see themselves represented or to, you know, in this case, yeah, like telling a story of women in their 40s and 50s finding their voice. Um, feels like it might be meaningful to people to hear. Um, and, and then with the people, I think, I think like, are they good people, which Meredith Mm -hmm. 150% is, and do they have, can they do it? You know, you, and I'd worked with Meredith for a long time and I knew that she could do it. Um, yes, because somebody can be a straight up genius and not be able to run a show. You have to, there's so much to running a show. Yeah. Sometimes being a genius would actually be in the way. But in Meredith's case, she's lucky. She can do it. <laughs> no, she's per- she was perfectly. She's uh. also, I also do think that, that I, and this is not, I mean, you don't have to be a mother to do anything. But I do think that if you are a mother, you're sort of already prepared to be a showrunner because you're, you're used to people constantly tugging on every part of your body, asking you things and wanting things. And you have to like make split second decisions. And in the case of motherhood, like it's life or death. And on sets, people think it's life or death, but it's really <laughs> just about TV. That's so true. You know what I mean? When you're a parent, you're living with other people in your head. Of like, well, when are they going to be hungry? And what are they going to be in on? And it is like that. Right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And you have to be sort of like, preemptive in your in the way that you move through the creative process I think yes showrunners yeah um and Jeff do you are you mostly just like I don't like that idea because I can't write original music for it is that how you well is there a song does it have a is there a theme song is there a cool poster (laughs) Jeff do you like to work backwards from the poster which I think do you really sometimes always I mean, that's not a bad idea. I'm holding this yeah. up. I just realized I was looking at this cup that was it's from a little like coffee shop in New Hope, Pennsylvania. Uh-huh. And we think somebody built a house in New York, Pennsylvania under our name. It keeps popping up that we went was, to we went to New Hope one time and which is a charming looked little, at houses little town. and didn't end up buying a house. And uh after that one time I've had like Eight different people, like guys on the SNL crew, random people being like, hey, I heard you're building a house in New Hope. And I was like, no, no, I'm not. Like so many people being like, I heard you're building a house. And I was like, did someone take a mortgage out in our name? <laughs> and is there some other lady with glasses who's like, it's really a mortgage weird. in my name? Then there was a newspaper article, and I think it came around the same time when everybody was leaving the city that cited that Said we that were we were building a house in New Hope. We are not. Okay, Probably well, we guess what? There was like a... Uh, realtor in upstate New York that like sold a story about me having a house up there. That's I think they do that because they're trying to generate their own real estate business. Yeah, maybe. So it might just be like 
you know, like a realtor is taking people out and they're like, you know who we were showing this property to is thinking about building a house here is Tina Fey. Like, you know who that is. Who would give a shit? Who would be like, who would care? Cares. I guess people people do. I lived in Westport, Connecticut, which is, you know, a suburb of New York City. And that would often happen like if, say, um, who's the guy from 90210, the blonde, curly haired? Steve Sanders. Steve Sanders. Yeah. Like one time I saw. But that's not his real name. Yeah, Ian Ziering. Like one time we saw him in the diner in Westport, Connecticut. And then there was like a big rumor around town that Ian Ziering like moved to Westport, <laughs> Connecticut. And I was like, what a boring day in Westport, Connecticut. But he was just like in the diner having pancakes, you know? So that maybe that's what happened to you guys. I hope nobody built a house in your name. Um,. I do. I hope they did. (laughs) Well, you should move into it. You should show up with your bags and move into it. So are there more musicals in your future? I want to hear your answer because we've never talked about this. So this would be a good time. I'd like to hear your answer first. I mean, I I would love to do it again. Yeah. I would want to start something original, I think. Uh, I would do it again and go in so much smarter this time about knowing who to listen to and when to listen to people and uh, when to really just trust your gut and when to really push what you... Tina made that glass. Well, yeah, see this glass, you guys? I mean, the podcast... She made that... She blew that glass. you did the glass blowing. Yeah, we did glass blowing. Our nephew in Ohio is a talented glass blower. Anyway, this is boring for a podcast, but I'm drinking from a No, it's so cool. No, it's it's very cool. It's very cool. Wait, hold it up. I'll take a picture and I'll put put it on the Instagram. Okay, ready? Tina did a glass blowing with her her nephew. She went to visit her nephew and did a glass blowing class with him and she made a beautiful glass and she's drinking out of it right now. I'm just going to narrate it because it's a podcast. Guys, I have one more pivot, though, that we should talk about, which is letting your nine-year-old Penelope play my daughter on Girls 5 Eva. Talk about a pivot. That's a real pivot. Because did you ever think? I mean, did I ever think that maybe she would be an actress someday? 100%. But did I ever think that we would let one of our children do... We did... Penelope did like a one-line thing on Kimmy Schmidt once when she was really small, like too small to even remember. And I think, you know, with Alice, because I think all kids go through a phase where they think that's what they want to do. I remember Alice and I, we went to see Pippin on Broadway and she was like, I want to do that. And I was like, that's fine. If you want to audition for theater, that's fine because that you have to really work and have skills. Whereas the kid actor thing can just be like you are cute and then, then you just your life is ruined. But so we always were very like strict about it with Alice. She was a photograph in one episode. She played young Liz Lemon in a couple photographs on 30 Rock. That was it. Um, but then if the pandemic happened, everything was the pits, really- you know, distance learning was the pits. And this part came up and I thought, you know, we're going to have to let Penelope audition for it because if she hears that there was a nine-year-old and she didn't get to audition for it, she'll rage. And so she, she, she gets that from me. Um, that. <laughs> and, and so classic Tina. And so we let her put herself on tape and then we were like, oh, it was pretty good. And her line, it was, it was good. If the audition was, first of all, I want to say this. I got to see the audition. Yeah. First of all, the audition was amazing. Secondly, Penelope did her own makeup yeah. for the audition because she was playing an influencer, like a makeup <laughs> influencer. Obviously you guys, if you've watched Girls 5, you know that. And it was, her makeup was so Amazingly crazy, like so nine-year-old, cra- like crazy. I said to 
busy. I think, you know, if I saw, if I was given this audition tape cold and it wasn't my kid, I would be like, who's this crazy little bitch? (laughs) (laughs) This makeup was bonkers, like just crazy eyeliner. (laughs) She looked insane. And insane and um, adorable. And, but then, so we said, okay, well, you know, great job. You did a good job. Obviously we're going to, you know, we're going to give it to a kid who's more experienced. And there was a lovely young woman who had done, also done a very good job. Um, and we hired her. And then because of pandemic insanity, she had traveled to Michigan and the quarantine rules changed and she couldn't get back. And so we were like, well, all right, here you go, Eve you go. Harrington. <laughs> here you go, Eve. Eve. Uh... Eve Harrington, right. She And she got to like skip a day of distance learning and get her COVID test and come on set. And I, I have to say she was super professional and polite <laughs> mm-hmm. and she was prepared and she did a very, very good job. And I think, uh, Jeff, tell me if you agree, but I think she's very interested in like, uh, I think she feels a part of the show, but she feels that way about Mr. Mayor too. Like she likes that we have these shows that are on TV now during her lifetime because 30 rock means nothing to her. Kimmy Schmidt. She doesn't remember. Um, and but she hasn't been like personally thirsty. Like she's not. She hasn't been like, bragging that she's on it. She just like enjoys the episodes and wants to watch. <laughs> Pretty cute. She's playing it cool. Yeah, she did a great job. She was Thank fantastic. You. I have to say, I really enjoyed working with her. And actually, it's funny because I just want to say, Tina was. I I wouldn't have been as on the fence as tina you seemed to be i would have been like yeah put him in like get her in there (laughs) but you were like very much like i don't is this a good idea am i what's uh are you sure and you like kind of said to me like are you sure this is like i don't know i'm not uh it makes me feel uh and i my feeling was like first of all working with children which I've done a fair amount of, is always so tricky because you're not just working with the kids, you're working with whoever their handler is mm-hmm. and then their parents are there. And like, it's a real roll of the dice, guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because the kind of person who's able to like, or willing, willing, willing to like give up their own life to take their kid to a million auditions and stuff is like, generally speaking, like, you know, it's a lot is all I'm saying. <laughs> we did have, I've had a lot of, very frank conversations with both our kids about what usually happens to child actors and how like you can do this if you work for us but you cannot go work for anybody else like it's like you know how you know how when you come to the set and everyone's so nice to you because your mom and dad work there that would not be the case if your mom and dad did not work there <laughs> like because it's it can be rough. One last thing, Tina, I just want to say that we didn't really get a chance to talk about it, but your Dolly Parton was fucking fantastic. Thank you, Casey. Oh, Lord. You know, it wasn't supposed to be me. And then sometimes you just got to, I had to, I had to summon my, my, like my SNL impervious to humiliation armor and just be like, I'm just going to take my shot. It was amazing. I could just watch like six episodes of you just doing that. Talk about commending people for doing fine. (laughs) No, I I don't think that's true at all, by the way. To go from like full pandemic, like sweatpants, never leave the house into full Dolly regalia was a real something. That was like a lot. A pivot. That was a real pivot. Thank you. A pivot for you. Yeah. Just and and also just like amazing timing. Like just Dolly. Dolly like helped us get out of the pandemic 
it was like just a genius, genius timing. Yeah. But uh, yeah, you did. You did such a great job. I'd tell you if you didn't. Thank you, dear. <laughs> was I supposed to be looking at this the whole time? Because I wasn't. Why is a podcast? Should we do this? Should we do it again? Jeff, you Let's- did. You did perfectly. You were okay. per- you were a perfect guest, and it was so perfect. nice to see you. Um. Well, guys, very glad that you took the pivots, and that when Jeff got that directing job, Tina really had to go for the job at SNL. <laughs> Due to her high ethical standards, her In Chicago improv, improv ethic- yeah. ethical standards. Yes. Did you ever feel? Did you? I have one more question, and then I'm going to really let you go. Did you ever? Were you ever concerned about? Because it was just a different time about having your kids, Tina, and like not and like in the height, like in your career, like, oh, God, what if I get? Um, I, no, I was I was a person who didn't really think about having kids until like 33, like 33, like something it was so chemical that something kicked in. And before that, I was like, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe I was I was not driven to do it. Um, and then, then had Alice and then Penelope, they're so far apart because I guess I just kept thinking like, well, maybe when 30 Rock gets canceled, we were always on the edge of being canceled. And I was like, well, maybe I'll try again after it's, if the show gets canceled. And then it just went on for seven years. So <laughs> then I was like 40, 41. I was like, I gotta go. I gotta try. So I was 41. No. Well, Penelope is perfect. She's perfect. <laughs> They so both are ways. lovely. They are. Young They're great women. kids. <laughs> I love that Busy was like, I just need to ask you one more question, then I'll let you go. And then she asked you like the biggest, um, deepest philosophical question you could I ever ask a woman. I was just curious. I was just curious because you have such a, yeah, what? I remember something about that uh, in terms of like having, because I remember I was like, I was, I was, I did spin out a little bit about like, okay, I'm almost 40. This show's not ending. Like, do I try to have another kid? Um, and I was shooting and there was a minute, there was like a hot minute. Here's Penelope now. There was a hot minute where I was maybe going to do a movie with Meryl Streep. It never happened. But, and I was like, and I was shooting 30 Rock with, you have to be quiet, we're on a podcast. (laughs) Um, I was shooting 30 Rock with Matt Damon and we're just like chatting between takes. And I sort of was saying to him, like, what do I do? Should we try to have another baby real quick? Or I might do this movie with Meryl Streep and. You know, being a family man, but also being a guy, he was like, "What are you talking about? Have a baby? Dogs do a movie later." Um, oh, yeah, he's so dumb; he doesn't know. <laughs> <laughs> and then I think I got pregnant, and then like was just keeping it to myself, and then the Meryl movie fell apart anyway. So and then you told cheers. me he was kind of right; like I shouldn't have put all my eggs in the Meryl basket. It did not fail. Yeah, and you know what, Meryl is still around. She's still making movies. So maybe Matt was right. Maybe he wasn't so stupid. Maybe he was right. Meryl Streep, if you're listening, I'm sure you probably are. Let's go. Tina Fey, please call her. That could be her <laughs> next ready. pivot. She's ready. She's, she's ready. She's ready. Are you going to do, are you going to create another show for yourself to star in? Um, That's a good question. I don't know. I don't have, you know, the biggest thing after seven years, and that is the biggest mom thing too of like, being home when people wake up, like leaving the house at 5.20, whatever, in the morning when your kids are not awake is is uh, not ideal. No. So 
I don't know. I maybe I maybe I'm just gonna pause and then like slide in Golden Girls style and like yeah, ten more, with fifteen you. more years. This is this this is the thing that people don't understand when I say like I qu- quit acting or whatever. It really isn't about quitting acting. It's that like I don't want to work that much while these people need me as much as they do. And also, and not only that, and they don't even probably really need me that much, but I just want to be around them. Yeah, you want to be around them. And it's almost, it's, someone had told me years ago that it's easier when they're, and I've told other people this, when they're tiny newborns. Yes. You can bring them everywhere. You can work. And they need you more later. Mm-hmm. You're just Phoebe Catesing it right now. Yeah, I'm, I'm in right? my Phoebe Cates. <laughs> Chris Didn't Phoebe Cates like decide that, she was going to like, like to say, chill. I'm, I'm Rick Moranising it. You're Rick Moranising <laughs> it. In like a You're couple Skeet, ways. Skeet Ulrich too. <laughs> but now he's back because his kids are grown. There you go. That's true. true. We're just naming people. All right, Casey. <laughs> Is that not, that's not how we do a podcast? Okay. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you, mine are older and they will. Yeah, there, there's going to come a time when, you know. They're going to live on the other side of the country. That's what I can tell you. That's You'll right. never hear from them. It feels weird. Except for once a week. If you're once lucky. Once a week's pretty good. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to say if you're lucky. Yeah. All right, guys. Thank you so much for making time for us. And thanks for Anytime. giving me all these jobs that you've given me <laughs> and, and believing in me in ways that defy my own belief in myself, guys, both of you. I'll never stop. (laughs) I really appreciate it. It means a lot to me. Did you have fun? Have fun. (laughs) The most. It's the most fun. No, I loved it. I really do love it. I love it. I love it because we've been doing this for so long and I forget how much fun we've had. That's a really good point. Yes. Sometimes when you're in the you're in the thick of it, you don't remember, oh shoot, this is so much fun. But we have been so lucky to really just laugh our asses off so many, 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 many times and over the years doing so this. So lucky to have you guys with us along the way. Like tuning in for those three plus hours sometimes <laughs> and just being like, I'm down. I'm ready to laugh. I want to lull. Give it to me. And you know what? Sometimes we give you the tears and you're like, well, I'm here for the tears. <laughs> but this was about fun today and I'm so happy. And I, thanks guys for listening and thanks loving. Thanks for being with us. And we will talk to you real soon. We love you. Bye. Bye. Oh, no.